Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, the world's first pro-cancer, pro-poverty and pro-climate change charity. This week's episode is on The Conquest of Bread, a seminal work of anarcho-communism written by Peter Kropotkin and first published in French in 1892. Kropotkin was born in Moscow in 1842 to an aristocratic serf and land-owning family, his father being a royal officer. Kropotkin, sympathetic to his family's serfs and living in a time of revolutions throughout Europe, came to oppose not only the Tsarist system, but all non-anarchist systems of government, and left behind a promising career as a geographer and naturalist to dedicate himself to more socially useful pursuits, in his own words. This entailed Kropotkin getting involved in various revolutionary organisations and, as a result, being imprisoned in both Russia and France, as well as being chased out of Switzerland at the request of the Russian government. He eventually ended up in London, where he continued to write and organise. He returned to Russia in 1917, initially full of hope because of the revolutions, but this turned to disappointment, as the Bolsheviks represented a strand of communism he felt was too authoritarian and antithetical to the anarchist principles he held for most of his life. He died in 1921, a prominent figure in the diminished Russian anarchist movement. The conquest of bread sees Kropotkin taking shots at the feudalist and capitalist systems ruling in Europe at the time of writing, as well as at authoritarian communism, that is to say, Marxism. He describes how anarchist revolutions can be successful, and sketches out his vision of a society in which goods and services are distributed purely on the basis of need. Before we start, I want to give a shout out to Heilick, Nick B, J-Man, Not San Marzano Supremacy, Abraxas, and At Double Speed, our lovely Patreon subscribers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's thanks to you that this podcast is no longer losing money. So, if you're ready to finally understand what all these bread posting memes are about, then listen on. Enjoy. So what did you think of this book, actually? Because some aspects of it are at least somewhat directionally similar to what you think, and aspects of it are completely different to how you think the world should be run. Yeah, this actually turned out to be one of the more fun books that we've read. Not because I agree with it, but because it was just... (laughs) I found myself both agreeing at least sentimentally with some aspects of it mm. and and then strongly disagreeing with other aspects of it <laughs> so it was a bit of a roller coaster ride the other the other part of it that was really interesting was that he makes references to a lot of um 18th and 19th century historical events in Europe mm. and mm. other thinker and other thinkers who i haven't necessarily read a lot of and so i was uh I spent a lot, like a lot of my time reading this book wasn't even reading the book. It was just looking at the different years and events that he was referring to. Um, in particular, like I found out about this thing, which I'm sure like all Europeans would know about, at least to some extent. Um, I think it's called the the springtime of the nations or the springtime of revolution or the, or the, the uh, yeah, revolutionary spring. Mm, uh, in 1848. Yeah. Which were, yeah. where there was like so many revolutions occurring simultaneously. Um and yeah, I just found all that stuff really interesting. So if nothing else, it was a historically interesting read. Yeah, it was historically interesting because I had sort of a a first sentence of a Wikipedia page knowledge of a lot of the historical events that he's 
referring to. Now I have maybe the first five sentences in terms wow. of knowledge on those events, which yeah, is a nice. pretty significant expansion of knowledge, <laughs> at least in relative terms. <laughs> the absolute level of knowledge is probably not that great. Yeah, it was really interesting from that perspective. This book is really interesting in that he he has identified real problems that that are very much worthwhile in trying to address. I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that his proposed solutions didn't resonate with me quite as much. But he, he does identify problems that are still relevant today, or at least some of the problems are still very much relevant today. And the book is still influential today. I didn't know this, but did you know that the the Occupy movement, you know that it was particularly in the United States, that, that left-wing movement yeah. that arose in response to the yeah, yep. financial crisis, was a lot of the organisers of that were influenced by Kropotkin. Yeah, well, that was a uh, an anarchistic movement, right? I guess so. Somewhat. It was, it was kind pretty, of pretty varied. Kind of garbled what they actually wanted yeah. beyond complaint. Yeah. Um, yeah, not surprised at all that this has been an influential book. It was originally published in French, mm. and his, his Russian originally published in French and then translated in English like five years after or something. Yeah, yeah. I can only assume that he's a good writer, but at least the English version that I read was well written. And look, I have a bunch of issues with socialism, but like putting those aside... He's definitely like capitalizing on the fervor of the time. And so definitely understand why it could have been influential. Plus he published yeah. in Paris as well. So there's probably a lot of people receptive to that sort of stuff when he published. Yeah, yeah. The guy had a pretty interesting life as well. Really interesting he, life. Yeah, because he was born in Moscow in 1842. And he was born to an aristocratic family. His father was a prince. And he, he was obviously a really smart guy because he was also, he had success in his life when he was younger, particularly as a geographer and also in, in terms of biology, like as a naturalist. But he decided to pursue social justice as his calling rather than geography. As such, he was, was, he was, a, he was imprisoned in Russia, but escaped, then lived in Switzerland um, until he was, I think he was expelled on the request of the Russian government from Switzerland after <laughs> radicals assassinated Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Mm. Um, interestingly, that assassination led to a lot of crackdowns in Europe, particularly on anarchists, even though the organisation, the People's Will in Russia responsible for it, I don't think was an anarchist organisation. I think they were leftist terrorists and associated with the socialist movement. But I'm not. I'm not sure if they were anarchists. Anyway, yeah, he was. He was kicked out of Switzerland for that. Went to France, got arrested and imprisoned there for three years on charges of sedition. Then moved to England. He was there until 1917 because, at that point in history, the the English just prosecuted radicals less than in other countries, I guess. But yeah, he moved back to Russia in 1917. Quite sad, actually, in that. He seemed to be quite hopeful for the, the Russian Revolution, sort of if after the February Revolution it's quite in 1917. But then um, when the Bolsheviks took power in the October Revolution, he, he became a lot more pessimistic. Because as I'm, 
as we will discuss, because it's, it's one of the more interesting parts of this book, he had real problems with Marxist communism and what he called authoritarian communism, which is what the Bolsheviks, not only to him, I think just it's difficult to argue that the Bolsheviks don't represent an authoritarian strain of communism. Yeah. See, he's one of these people who I think, even though I disagree with, well, one, he gets points for not killing anyone. <laughs> that is <laughs> he, Although his ideas might have led to... Or, not an anti-Semite you know, either. Not At least in this book, there's not anti-Semitism. Which, yeah, not here. Given, given this podcast's usual subject matter is still a big plus point, but I don't yeah. have to wade through anti-Semitism. And, but he, he's also... He really was sincere. Yes, yes. He really stuck by so. what he meant. He wasn't just one of these grandstanding people. Like some of the people that we've read, especially on the sort of alt-righty sort of vibes. Yes, um, just pure LARP. Yeah. For example, I, I think raw egg nationalism doesn't. It's like if you're not actually posting pictures of your yoked body on Twitter, then how mm. do I know mm. that you're mm. actually being authentic? Whereas this guy like got kicked out of, what, three countries? For sticking to, to yeah. his beliefs. Went to yeah. prison. <laughs> and then when he when he returned to Russia in in 1917, he was offered, I think, the ministership for education and said no because he doesn't believe in government. Fuck yeah. That's pretty Chad. <laughs> that is a Chad move. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this guy was sincere. He definitely wasn't LARPing. And I think he which was it, also... Yeah, you're right. It's particularly, it's particularly like the BAP Twitter part <laughs> of, of what we've read for this, which is just pure live-action role-playing. For sure. He was also... Yeah. What would you say? Um, he's a sensitive boy. <laughs> he's clearly, he was he's a, clearly sensitive a sensitive boy. person. And look, that sensitivity comes through as deep resentment at times. Well, actually, a lot of his is deeply resentful but um, it also comes through as like you can see that he cares about so he came from an aristocratic family or at least like a middle class family at the very least i think his i think his dad was a prince or his grandfather or something and so something something to that effect anyways he didn't have to grow up in oh yeah and then he uh he was taken into the czar's Boarding school. That's right. He went to some ball. I read this this just on Wikipedia. Go and fact check it. Um, that he went to a ball when he was like fourteen years old, where the czar was attending the ball, and he was so well dressed that the czar was and the czar was impressed. He the czar like offered him full um, attendance at some special school, and so he actually went to just because of his grills, because of his grills, yeah, yeah, and his face tat. Um, yeah, so nice. he didn't have to. You know, if you think, well, there was a large portion of the population who probably had his family social background, maybe not a large portion, but a significant portion, and they didn't necessarily become bleeding hearts for the surf or the former surf class, whereas he actually took it on Mm. board, took his experiences on board, and thought that, that the world could do better. Yeah, yeah. It was also interesting the time in which he was living was it was a time in which it it would ju- it would be much easier to see the world eventually being engulfed in particularly anarcho-communist revolution but revolutions in general not to say it can't happen again but we've lived through a time at least in the west of 
stability or relative stability, whereas he lived in a very, very febrile time. And during his lifetime, he saw enormous changes. Huge. When he was, because he, he would have only been 20 or something when Tsar Alexander II yep. emancipated the serfs, yep. which was in, it's, it's complicated, but <laughs> the events leading to that, the, the revolutions of 1848, so I mean, he would have been like four or something when those were happening, so he wouldn't have been cognizant of the, those events. But a lot of the demands of the revolutionaries in 1848 eventually did come to pass in the subsequent 30 years or so, 20, 30 years, after most of those revolutionary movements were put down by conservative forces. Because, for example, you had Tsar Alexander II in the 1860s, I think, who emancipated the serfs. You had von Bismarck in Germany, or in first Prussia, and then taking control of various German states from the Austrians and the French, uh, in- instituting things that we would now recognise as the precursors to the welfare state. The sorts of demands of people in 1848 were working their way through the political systems of Europe when Kropotkin was alive. And he, he also saw well, the, the Paris Commune as well. There was so much political instability that tended in the direction that Kropotkin wanted that it's very easy to see how someone could see that world and say, yep, the world is headed in one way or another towards anarcho-communism, or at least some form of anarchism. Whereas we live in a world now where anarchism's it's not really a mass movement anymore. The last gasp of it was probably the Spanish Civil War, where you had groups like the POUM, which had a lot of a lot of popular support and could command troops and things like that, but weren't in part because of anarchist ideology, weren't nearly as organised as the authoritarian communists who in large part betrayed the the anarchists in the Spanish Civil War or the fascists who have absolutely no problem with authoritarianism. (laughs) (laughs) They they in fact quite like it. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's interesting looking back given that we live in a time where anarchism is not really a, a meaningful political movement at large scale. Yeah, it's really interesting. So why are we giving all this historical context? We're giving this historical context because... We can read Wikipedia. Because we can read we wanna, Wikipedia. We want to show off. <laughs> we want to show off. Um, and it's also really interesting to try to frame this. I, I think, well, anybody's writing potentially, but especially Kropotkin, Kropotkin, I found really interesting to, to frame what he was writing about in his historical mm. context. Yeah, and also some listeners said that they'd prefer it if we gave a bit more historical context to things. Shout out to Yarp. Yarp. Which, which, which is not unreasonable. <laughs> so we're going to be doing our best impression of people who are historically aware of this episode <laughs> and in subsequent episodes as well. Yeah, to the degree that it doesn't make it completely um, boring for... For listeners other than Yarp. <laughs> no, I was wanting this just to be a law dump. Being a law dump on the Paris Commune for four hours, and eventually we might get around to discussing the conquest of bread. There was one really interesting piece of history that I was reading about with uh, the French Revolution. There was this guy, I can't remember his name. Damn, what was his name? Marquis uh, Comte, Comte something. Anyways, he was, uh, he was one of the leaders of, of the, uh, the Third Estate. 
the third estate are like the, the was the working classes and representatives of the working class. Um, and there was this one confrontation they had with like the royalists in uh, in in Paris, and the guy was like, one his opponent was saying, "You must leave. You can't get the third estate to um, you know ally with the first and the second estate." And his the guy replied. Yeah, we're not going to leave here except at the end of bayonets. <laughs> There's like this really famous quote, and that guy was actually the first guy who was um, buried in the Pantheon or Path- Parthenon, Pantheon, whatever the thing is in Paris, that where French people bury really important people. Um, and I thought that that quote actually summed up a lot of what was going on. You can't get us out of this situation except unless you actually take take it to the point of of the like in this case bayonets. Um, mm, and that kind which of did happen. Yeah, it happened a lot. And that <laughs> that characterized basically you could think sort of eighteenth, like late, mid to late eighteenth century, all the way up until essentially the end of the end of the Second World War, really. It was like a huge period of mm. just nonstop or you know, maybe periods of rest and relative stability punctuated by revolutions and um uprisings and that sort of thing. That's a very turbulent time in European history. Compared to like yeah, because there was well apart apart from that there was a period of twenty or so years when Bismarck was, I think, imperial chancellor in the newly unified Germany, or at least you know, a bunch of German states had been brought under Prussian control, where he worked really really hard to prevent wars in continental Europe, and there was it was relatively stable, but yeah. either side of that. It's just typical European history, which is so, so tumultuous. One I think of the it's things- the, Sorry, go on. Europe has been, at least in our lifetimes, fairly laid back in terms of not, not, not killing, killing itself. Not killing each other, yeah. That it's, it's easy to forget just how extreme Europeans are in, in terms of coming up with ideologies and justifications for mass violence. Europeans are wild. Yeah, when you read most of human history, uh, a lot of human history in different parts of the world, I've noticed that yeah, there'll always be violence. Say, for example, one of my favorite examples is uh, is is it the Comanche? The Comanche in Northern America, mm. they're really violent people. <laughs> they, they they like enslaved their neighboring. You know this this idea of the noble savage and you know just living in peace and harmony with with nature and one another. That was not the Comanche. They they loved riding horses and sla- enslaving people, and they were. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of people now who they might have Navajo or, or Apache heritage as well, but they're like from a Comanche. Um, group, but it's because their great great grandmother or whatever was taken as a slave, or as like a concubine or something by the Comanche. Um, mm. And so there's there's that all over human history. But I guess the kicker with Western Europe in particular, but I suppose if you extended it to Russia, as far as Russia and, and maybe even the Ottomans, is they also developed really advanced technology for killing each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and had large populations and a lot of wealth um, over mm-hmm. the course of the last, like, say, 1,000 years, developed a lot of wealth and large populations. But to have that technology and development directed towards machines of war has <laughs> led to some pretty yeah. bad outcomes. Well, it was, it's a relatively large... And ex- very technologically advanced population in a relatively small geographic area, and also 
Well, I guess it, it depends on your definitions of technology. So you could just define it as social technologies, the, the organisation that Europeans also had. Yeah. They're very organised when it came to massacring each other. Yeah. I consider organisational structures a technology. Yeah. 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 So I, I guess, yeah, in terms of historical context, it was business as usual in Europe. <laughs> Which means <laughs> it was really violent, but organized violence. <laughs> and organized, yeah, yeah. They were very organized. Um, yeah, so it's super interesting. So this guy, the other part of uh, of this discussion, why giving a bit more historical context to Kropotkin is important is because of what I term, I don't know if this is used other way, uh, in other places, but in my own head, I'm not stealing this from somebody else, but I call it historical empathy. So mm, mm. trying to get better at having historical empathy, especially for people that one disagrees with. You could also think of it just contextual empathy if it's a writer who's, like if, if it's somebody who's writing now and you're reading them, not to just sort of dismiss their perspective because it's radically different from my own, but to actually mm. take into consideration the context and... Uh, as Popper would say, their problem situation. So it's not just what mm. problem are they solving, but what's the situation around it. And with Kropotkin, one of the things that stood out to me was that he has not benefited from the last, say, 150 years or so of further economic development and expansion and deepening of markets and all that sort of stuff that we've had and the rise of the global middle class. And so... He was living through this period at the end of the Middle Ages, sort of like the abolition of serfdom and stuff, where there were these parallels between the emerging capitalist economy in Europe and the old serf and aristocratic structure. And so he was, he was making these correspondences, and Marx did this as well and stuff, and the other socialists um, made these correspondences between, say, the aristocracy or the landed gentry and the capital owners. And to be fair, I assume that probably a lot of the capital owners may have been landed gentry or whatever, or descendants of landed gentry, but that's not built into the social structure, which is where, like, Marx's historical materialism, like, doesn't actually make sense. And so he mm. was looking at this, like, intensely oppressive social structure and then thinking that, well, capitalism is just a new form of that. Yeah. And I guess in, I mean, this is not really defending Kropotkin, and this is defending the the branch of, of communism that he didn't like, but at least in terms of the development of the global middle class, you could maybe steel man that argument by referencing Marxism-Leninism, so particularly in capitalism, the, high, the imperialism, sorry, the highest stage of capitalism, by Lenin. Lenin talks about how capitalist countries have basically offshored working-class misery to poor countries so that they can buy off their own proletariats with higher standards of living, better wages, shorter working hours, but immiserating workers in faraway countries. I guess like that, that might be a res response to what you were saying. Yeah, and I guess, well, I guess now we can start talking. Well, this, this is probably a good segue into talking about Kropotkin more directly because yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, gets yeah. onto one of the uh, core central, is it a fallacy or is it just an error, mistake, just, a, I guess, uh, error, in my opinion, of uh, socialism in general. 
all the various forms I've seen, mm. is that they have a uh, zero-sum mentality towards wealth creation. They think it's just like you just somebody has to be oppressed in order for there to be wealth created. Yeah, and that yeah. permeates like all of their thinking, and it including like including Kropotkin. And it it originally yeah, and I guess from- it depends on how you define oppression as well, because it seems to me that oftentimes if two people engage in some sort of business deal or something like that, and one party comes off better than another, even if they both benefit certain people will look at that and say that's oppression and certain people will look at that and say well one person's done better than the other but that's not necessarily predatory and how one views that oftentimes will determine whether they're they're more instinctively capitalist or socialist or even communist yeah yeah and i mean we can definitely discuss maybe towards the end of the episode my main or a couple of my main criticisms that I think just like eat through those discussions and cut cut to the chase on those. But maybe we should discuss Kropotkin more. Will that be how how when during the Yarvin episode I was Yarvin bot and trying my best to offer a Yarvinite response. And this time I'll have to be Kropotkin bot. Yeah, yeah, it. although I don't want to just... My, my best steel man of Kropotkin. I don't want to just offload, uh, offload all the steel manning to you. Like, I have put in a little bit more effort to try to understand. You don't have to be Kropotkin bot. I, I just think that there were certain fundamental errors in their understanding of economics that still people have today and haven't permeated into the rest of the world um, that just come through in, in the, this this sort of thinking that doesn't hold up anymore. But yeah. anyways. <laughs> Before we talk about Kropotkin, do you want to talk a bit about socialism and communism in the, in the time of Kropotkin? Because a lot of this book is him addressing, addressing arguments within the socialist and communist movements. Yeah, I have a bunch of notes about, about that, actually. Because so- this, was, this was one of the parts of the book that was really interesting because a lot of... What he talks about in The Conquest of Bread is actually addressing what he refers to as authoritarian communists, which is, which is basically Marxism. We can get into the history of the, the split within the communist movement between particularly the anarchists led by Bakunin and the, what we more think of as communists today led by Marx and the First International, because that, that's really important in this book. Yeah. And it's one of the really interesting parts. So socialism is a very large and complex, I would say, network of interrelated ideas. And the yeah, core... that's a good way to put it because it's not one thing. Yeah, it's more of a network. And if you had to say there's one primary characteristic of socialism, it would be the social ownership of the means of production yeah. as opposed to the private ownership. And there are various forms of that that could mean anything from like by social ownership that could be a small community you know they divide up the way they who uses what machines who uses what pieces of land it could be cooperatives workers cooperatives it could be unions it could be it could all the way be all the way to state communism where the state is the vehicle through which public ownership of all the means of production uh takes place so the question being, well, what is the means of production? The means of production are essentially just those bits of machinery, 
assets, land that are used to make other things. So you have consumer goods, which are like the things at the end of any production chain that actually get consumed in the final analysis. And then there's the things that go to make them. So a good example would be like making banana bread. The banana bread is the consumable and, you know, all the utensils, the oven, the labor, the productive land that went to growing the bananas, all those things are potentially considered the means of production. Mm-hmm. And in particular, there's generally three three main things or four main things that you could consider as part of the means of production. It would be like intellectual property of some sort, knowledge, um, machines, land, and labor. Depends what you mean by machines. You could think of machines as factories. Factories could be considered and machines as part of <clears throat> the same thing. And so the problem with, uh, or the, the problem that socialism is trying to solve is uh, many things, but one of the things that they're trying to solve is inequality, essentially. Yeah. Or inequity, depending on what you mean by it. So equality of outcome or equality of just a sort of more general sense of, well, everybody's equal. Yeah, yeah. And then within that, there's a bunch of strands of socialism. So communism is socialism based on common ownership of the means of production um, and allocation of consumption goods based on need, whatever you mean by need. Um, there's no private property, no classes, no money, and no state in the like ideal communism. There's the Fabians, which were non-revolutionary, gradualist, reformist socialists who thought, okay, well, how can we take the current form and create something like social democracy? Um, There's the Marxists, there's the anarcho-communists, there's a whole bunch of variations of this, but they all have in common that, like, they more or less lesser lesser want to abolish private ownership of the means of production and or private property. Yeah. I guess also because someone will, someone I'm sure might disagree with our definitions of these things because things like socialism and communism, particularly, are somewhat vaguely defined. Yeah. Today, when people say communism, more often than not, they're referring to the final stage of history. Yeah. In in the Marxist context, when the the dictatorship of the proletariat, which will exist to basically fend off any sort of counter revolutionary attacks by the bourgeoisie. When that melts away and when you live in a stateless workers' utopia, that's communism. And I think that today is probably the most common definition of communism. Yeah. And then set against that, probably the other major strand of communism is anarcho-communism, which rejects the this idea that the revolution should institute any sort of state, even if that state in the Marxist sense, being the dictatorship of the proletariat, exists to prevent a capitalist counter-revolution or a reactionary counter-revolution. Anarcho-communists flat out just don't recognise that a state should exist at all. Or there should be some some organised central authority governing things. And this split is really old. Like, in the you had the first international, which Marx was part of in the in the 19th century which which was where basically a lot of socialists and communists got together and tried to hash out how they would pursue revolution tried to hash out the theoretical aspects of their movement there was a huge fracture in it between communists led by marx who believed that 
some sort of state would need to exist post-revolution, at least for a while, to ensure that the gains of the revolution were maintained. And then anarcho-communists, which faction was led in large part by Mikhail Bakunin, who was a Russian anarcho-communist, or anarchist, I guess. I'm not sure if he described himself as an anarcho-communist. Because also at that time, anarchist was sort of a dirty word and synonymous with political terrorist or leftist terrorist. It is kind of still a dirty word, isn't it? Depends on depends on which circles you move in. <laughs> but yeah, at, at that time, it was much more closely associated with leftist terrorism because people espousing somewhat anarchist ideals were assassinating a bunch of political leaders around Europe. Like they, they, there were a lot of anarchist terrorists. Um, but yeah, Bakunin disagreed with Marx, particularly in that any sort of state should be set up. And then when Bakunin died, the anarchist movement somewhat, well, not somewhat, very ironically, was sort of looking for theoretical leadership or someone to come in and to to spell out the theoretical underpinnings of the anarchism that Bakunin espoused because he was less concerned with with offering a theoretical framework. He was much more interested in... Um, in the propaganda of the deed. And that's where Kropotkin came in. When Kropotkin moved to London, having having been imprisoned and chased out of a bunch of continental European countries, he moved to London, started writing or continued to write, and was was embraced as a theoretician of anarcho-communism. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't pick up yeah, on that. Yeah, so he filled that vacuum left by Bakunin. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, that actually makes a lot more sense. Which, how, which almost how he's writing. suggests that people naturally look for leaders. <laughs> well, my, my understanding of... Well, that's that's a good point. We should actually talk a little bit about... Yeah. Yeah, that, Anna- that was a cheap shot. No, that, 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 was actually, that was pretty unfair, actually. And that's not reflective of... Zing. Of anarchism. <laughs> Jack, Jack anarchism comes is, in. It's, it's not... No, it's not that. It was a pretty stupid <laughs> comment to make. Because basically, maybe actually defining anarchism in this context would be useful because... It's not that they say that there should be no authority or that any authority is de facto bad. Well, maybe some anarchists say that, but on the whole, it, it's a disagreement with the idea that you need an organised, centralised, coercive authority. And I think this, this recognition is in large part true. So we've, we've both read Hayek. And this is it's it's not an insight limited to to more left leaning philosophers and and political adherents. This idea that a significant degree of human action is non state mediated or not mediated by authorities. For example, what we're doing with this podcast now, we don't agree to do certain things for this podcast. For example, we don't agree to read certain books for for given episodes, using state-backed legal instruments that we agree. Yeah, no, Jack just actually hands me a subpoena each week and says, <laughs> "You will read this. If you don't do this, I'm going to take you to court." But that doesn't happen. So, at this very small scale, we self-organize without without the state inter- intermediating between us, and that's that insight is what what I think. Left anarchists and right anarchists both get right that there's a huge, I'd say the majority of human interactions, 
exist independently of the state. And that applies at all different scales. That can apply at the scale of a family. They'll have leaders. Sorry, one tick. Yeah, it's so it's not that anarchists necessarily disagree with any sort of authority. It's more with how do you formalise that authority? So, for example, with Kropotkin writing about the theoretical underpinnings for anarchism, I doubt that he would have a philosophical problem with the fact that he's offering these ideas and that certain people like those ideas and will propagate those ideas. And as such, Kropotkin occupies some sort of, or some, has some sort of prestige associated with his name because of his ideas. I don't think many anarchists would disagree with that, that self-organising capacity. Where they start to disagree is if you were to say, therefore Kropotkin should have coercive power over others and we need to organise some sort of coercive apparatus to perpetuate his, uh, this prestige associated with his name. I'm trying to make amends for that uh, thoughtless throwaway comment. <laughs> that, was, that was unfair. Sorry, I was saying before I was rudely interrupted by... A capitalist pig coming in, <laughs> asking for the keys, <laughs> asking for the keys to my scooter so they could perform repairs on the scooter. Bastards! <laughs> it's my scooter now. <laughs> no, very nice capitalist. Um, wh- what did I miss? <laughs> spoke about. <laughs> so you were saying that even. Even within family units, for example, there might be members of the family well, who carry greater authority than others. You have hierarchy. It's it's if if I had to put in the language of libertarian thinking, which has, depending on how far you take the libertarianism, blends into anarchism. It's just saying, well, there's a particular institution, the state, or you know, collection of institutions that have a monopoly on the use of violence and coercion, and at least the anarchists that I've read don't ever disagree with, well, you can have leaders, you can have communal leaders, family leaders, and potentially like even if an entire group of people in the order of millions of people wanted to consensually agree to have some sort of government, that as long as it's not essentially be monopolising violence and then using that violence to coercively enforce its point of view on everybody else, that there's always an opt-out or whatever, um, that that could still be considered anarchistic. Mm -hmm. It's not just... uh, I think there's some sort of misconception that anarchism is just like, it's just the wild, wild west out here, baby, and you can just run around killing people and there's no consequences. Look, if... I guarantee you there were consequences for running around killing people in the wild, wild west. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, so... Yeah, that's kind of surface level. I guess whenever I've heard somebody criticise anarchism on those grounds, it immediately indicates to me that they've never actually taken the time to go and read any anarchist thinking. There is a caricature of anarchism that exists that is much more frivolous than the, at least the anarchism that I've read. And like the conquest of bread. The conquest of bread is not nearly as frivolous as this rude caricature of anarchism that that's sort of a meme in our society, would have you believe. I assume that's just people just not reading it. Yeah, yeah, probably, which is why we're here. We read it <laughs> and, and regurgitate it, regurgitate it into your mouths like a bird. 
we're filling in this hole in your life where you go and take the time to actually read and think about something. And instead you take mine and Jack's thoughts and you just replicate those. Completely misrepresented (laughs) to you. Peter Kropotkin was all about an absolute state, which exists for the sole purpose of keeping the NASDAQ as high as possible. (laughs) Yeah. That's what this entire book's about. He actually, he predicted the NASDAQ by quite a long way. He was way ahead of his time. Nice. Yeah. It's mostly about Dogecoin, leveraged Dogecoin trading. (laughs) And, and, And an interesting point is that more, well, my perspective is that as the world becomes more networked and people all over the world can connect with one another spontaneously at very low cost, the marginal cost of connecting with other people is essentially zero. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's getting so low as to be quite trivial in a lot of cases. And so it almost seems to me as though this anarchistic stuff is just ramped up to, well, infinity almost with, with the internet. For example, the people on our Discord, complete anarchy. <laughs> but the fact that you have a platform like Discord, firstly, they didn't ask anybody's permission to create that platform, and then they've made it. And something like Discord has something like 200 million users, something like that. And those are all small internet communities, people spontaneously uh, self-organizing and having these interactions. And we're not even talking about technologies like Nostra and Bitcoin yet, which just facilitate even more non-state mediated peer-to-peer interactions. Uh, like behind. We hold the power of the <laughs> Yeah, we, yeah Jack and I are the kings <laughs> on the Discord <laughs> server. And we, we are jealous. Don't let anybody in the server get ideas. <laughs> we are jealous kings. <laughs> So, yeah, it's it's interesting. So I don't know what the role of the state is a thousand years from now, if there will be states and that sort of thing. But certainly it's going to be Discord servers. It's just going to be Discord servers. <laughs> the Discordization of the entire world. <laughs> oh, God, that does sound dystopian. <laughs> uh, but it does seem as though, well, uh, Hayek called it the emergent order, which I think is a very... Yeah. A very descriptive way of saying it. You have spontaneous social order of different forms, families, communities, so forth, uh, interacting with one another at different levels. So like different organizations interacting with one another or different individuals act- interacting with one another creates an emergent social order. <clears throat> As the population becomes bigger and more interconnected, that emergent social order seems to just dominate how much of an influence we have on one another's life compared to how much influence the state has on our lives proportionally, depending on obviously where you live in the world. Yeah. Where you live in the world and also the technological environment within which you yeah. live, because. So this doesn't the, apply well, to, the sta- to the, the state is itself a piece of social technology yeah. that has been very, very effective in organizing people, particularly for war. So it's, a, it's pretty good for that. An effective social technology for dominating your neighbors because it, particularly post-French Revolution when they started really trying to format the people within the geographic area (laughs) controlled by a particular state using things like a common language, using standardised education to try to inculcate 
a shared set of values, it allows you to mobilise a large number of soldiers in a fairly organised way to dominate your neighbours. So the state is not, it's not arbitrary. Like, it is a technology that exists and is competitive for a reason. But, well, we'll go over the reasons why Kropotkin still doesn't like it. He, he disagrees with that both on, an, on a moral level, in that he doesn't think that people should have that sort of authority, and also on a practical level, in that he thinks, or thought, he's probably not still thinking, he, <laughs> he is dead, he thought that anarchist or self-organising groups of people would actually have a technological advantage and a production advantage when compared to people who were who are organized from from t- the top down. And and Jack, could could, uh, could I rewind like 30 seconds? You used a particular word in a kind of strange way that I asked you about a number of weeks ago in an offline conversation. You said uh, it f- the state formats people. <laughs> I, loved it, formats I loved people. it when you used that word. Can you explain what you mean? This is a Jackism, people getting formatted. I, I mean it in the sense that, okay, so if, if we're going to, lean into the formatting analogy, the computer science <laughs> analogy. So people are running, people all have more or less the same hardware. Like there's, there'll be some variations in people's bodies, but compare it, you know, comparing two humans and then comparing a human to a non-human animal or to a rock, like human bodies are pretty similar, <laughs> but the software people are running can be radically different. And so in the case of, so suppose you have a a geographic area. We can well I mentioned the French Revolution. So pre-French Revolution, what we think of as French today was effectively what they spoke in Paris and the surrounding area. And people throughout the rest of the the country spoke different languages. So they were running different software in that respect. And post-French French Revolution, there was a concerted effort to make everyone within the geographic and political entity that we call France speak Parisian French or just Pervi- the Parisian language. So reformat them so that they can all understand each other and understand things communicated by the state in that particular language. So using that particular software such that they're easier to organise. So that's an example of how you can be formatted by a state. So good. I love that. I love that. <laughs> formatting. Formatting people. Format yourself. <laughs> just rewrite them. LSD is really good for defragging. <laughs> <laughs> if your operating system's a bit like slow, a bit clunky, just you shake up the snowball. <laughs> just defrag it. It seems like it, Alex. That's that's the way to do it. You just take enough that you stop being able to speak whatever language <laughs> your, your particular state <laughs> wants you to speak. Just start speaking in tongues. <laughs> This is true freedom. <laughs> not being not being able to operate within the state environment. <laughs> not being able to operate not having, within your not couch. having enough shared shared yeah, pieces of software. Well, it's even things like social mores is another area that, to a large extent, I don't think it's state imposed. I think this is much more spontaneous order. How okay, like in Australia, how people from mainland China and Australia. Like when they're like freshly in Australia, we'll just like spit on the ground because it's pretty normal in a lot of China. But in in Australia, that's not cool to be like sitting outside a cafe and just keep spitting on the street in front of people. Yeah. But pretty quickly, they learn that that's not socially acceptable. Like there, there's this social, 
there's a self-organizing social code that they get formatted to fairly quickly. So it doesn't have to be state mediated. Yeah. Hey, Jack, what do you call a well-adjusted eel with lots of friends? Well-adjusted eel with lots of friends? Yeah. <laughs> no idea. A social moray. Uh, 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 uh. Insert for people who aren't for people eel. who aren't aware or don't don't know enough about Australian marine biology. A moray eel is a type of eel in Australia. Tropical. There's lots of eels. I saw eels last night. I went on a night dive. Oh, they're terrifying. They have these giant needle-like teeth. Yeah, no, they're really cute. I really like them. They're <laughs> not cute. They're really placid. They don't cut like they won't come, but they'll stick their little head out and they'll have that dumb fucking look on their face. <laughs> <laughs> so good i love them anyways yes uh fish jokes are on top of mind at the moment with all the diving <laughs> levi's doing lots of diving <laughs> i got down to oh yeah i didn't tell you i got down to um 27 meters the other day in one of my free dives it was cool oh free dive yeah yeah free. that's really cool and so i was actually getting to the point where you can drop like you free fall once you go negatively buoyant you free, you free fall to you free falling underwater. It's really fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. Does that making swimming back up to the surface way harder? Yeah, well, it's pushing you down. That's why you're free falling. So if you want to come back to the surface, you've got to you've got to kick against the negative buoyancy. Yeah, I might not. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I I uh, I've derailed the conversation about anarcho-communism with That's my very unusual with us. my shitty ill joke. <laughs> What were we even talking about? Uh, I don't know. Should we just get straight more into Kropotkin, though? Yeah. We've got some major concepts like, that he talks about. Yeah, yeah. And I get, yeah. When we discuss the major concepts, we can talk about how those compare to to Marxism, but also to other forms of anarcho-communism. Because he, he disagreed with other luminaries of the, the left anarchist movement, like Bakunin. And then, uh, anarcho-syndicalism wasn't so much a thing when Kropotkin was around, but... That's been an evolution of a branch of anarchism. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. the two major concepts that we should talk about first are either or slash probably both interwoven. Uh, the wage labour system, why it's bad and how to abolish it, <clears throat> and the concept of expropriation. So they're closely related. Uh, what do you reckon we should touch on first? Maybe a tiny or just a bit of context because what he was talking about was he saw that workers particularly the urban working class in the various european countries he was in were immiserated and conditions for them were getting worse they were getting paid less and less mm. in part because of exposure to basically productive working groups in other european countries which would drive down the amount of money they could demand in return for their services and also in response to mechanisation. So some artisans were suddenly getting paid less and less or could demand less money for their wares because you now had machines that could automate what they did or make it so that someone with minimal training could output fairly similar things to what an artisan with extensive training could do. They were having to work longer hours. Work was highly, highly... Or their, their working conditions were precarious, like they could lose their job in a day. Um, a lot of them were starving, living in disease-ridden, cramped apartment blocks. It was, it was really horrible. If you've ever heard the and word so, Luddite, Luddites, the Luddites mm. refer to textile workers who 
<clears throat> went and smashed up factories and stuff. Um, yeah, because yeah. of this issue in in the in the early nineteenth century. Yeah, and so Kropotkin looked at this and tried to work out why it was happening and how you could prevent this from happening. So it's it's why, as you were saying earlier, how you don't agree with this, but you take it seriously. Similarly, I I ultimately don't agree with his prescriptions or suggestions for what should happen, but he's not being malicious. He's trying to solve real problems. Yeah, he saw these he saw these problems and he decided that the root cause of these is the existence of private property and private property and the state. A a related concept to private property is the wage system. So people people who getting paid or being able to demand payment for their labor. And the way that the way that you um get around this is expropriation. I guess this comes to this idea of revolution. So he acknowledged well he supported revolution against the, the current capitalist order, but said that there could be many types of revolution, but only really one type of revolution, the anarcho-communist revolution, could succeed. And a, a component of this would be expropriation of everything. People wouldn't own anything. So housing, you would expropriate it and distribute it to people on the basis of need. Food you would expropriate it, distribute it to people on the basis of need. Clothing, he said that you could expropriate clothing, but it was better probably just to expropriate the means of producing clothes yep. and make people clothes and distribute the new clothes because no one wants wants old clothes. <laughs> well, he was wrong about that. I mean, you just got to go to an op shop in like San Francisco or Melbourne or whatever, or Berlin, I assume, is just full of op shops. People love used clothing. Yeah, it's a, a narrow band of people think it's fashionable to wear beaten up used clothing. Most people want want newer clothes. It's not going to buy them any social prestige to be to, wearing a fucking tea cozy as a beanie. To be an upper, like upper middle Whatever class. weird shit people in Fitzroy wear. Upper middle class kid in Melbourne or Sydney pretending to be poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Kropotkin chic. Yeah, so expropriation. It was it was one of the the necessary conditions for a successful revolution, according to Kropotkin, where you you take everything. And when I say take everything, I don't mean that there's this central body, not like a a disciplined Marxist revolutionary yeah. party, which decides what to take, who who you're taking things from, to whom these things go. He said that basically. When the revolution happens, you're going to have groups of people self-organised to start taking inventories of housing or inventories of food in their local area. And then they're going to, again, spontaneously start distributing these things to people in their local area on the basis of what people need. This is one of the places where I I take him less seriously because I just... (laughs) Don't know why people wouldn't just start taking things for themselves, and why there wouldn't be any resistance. Yeah, well, that's the other. Thing. <laughs> so, like, you have a ro- people start shooting. He calls them bands of volunteers, <laughs> which just start exploding. <laughs> sounds like bandits. <laughs> so, so gangs will just pop up and start saying that they're volunteers and saying that they're expropriating the means of production in order to quote-unquote redistribute it to the more needy. <laughs> yeah, it's like someone expropriating TVs from a, a caddy during a riot. Or, you know, a whole bunch of people expropriating 
kicks from culture kings in downtown LA mm. <laughs> or something mm. like <laughs> it's just yeah you can call yourself a revolutionary but you're actually just a thug yeah and this does run this brings up one of the areas where I got quite irritated with Kropotkin because we've seen this form of argumentation many times and I've pointed it out in a number of episodes where I'm pretty sure one of his responses to that would be well, you've grown up in a capitalist environment, which means that you couldn't possibly conceive of how noble and selfless the working classes are. And the reason why you think that this wouldn't work is because you are not, you know, because you're a capitalist, because you're not an anarchist. And it's this form of argumentation which basically says you can only validly critique or understand what I am saying if you already understand, if you already agree with me, yeah, it's the dismissal of somebody that disagrees with you as saying they don't understand you. It's like, well, maybe I do understand yeah. what you're saying, but I just think you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, so I, I get irritated when people argue like that, and we've seen this form of argumentation all over the place. Yeah, I've probably been guilty of it as well, like at times. Oh, I think pretty, we all pretty, we all have. You just easy yeah, to it just need to be. Into. Try to be self-aware. But I haven't written a 200-page manifesto based on that entire premise. So, <laughs> I could. <laughs> why, why you should elect, not elect, I mean, why you so, should uh, genuflect to Levi as Emperor King of the world. Yeah, genuflect. I like that. I like that yeah, a lot. You like that one. Yeah, nice. that's, that's very important. It's, it's genuflection, not election. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he has this kind of hand weight. That one of my issues with Crow Popkin. All right, we've done too much context setting and fucking all this sort of crap. We're yeah, gonna start let's, let's get into, into it proper, and, proper and critiquing. And it. how, long, how long have we been recording for? Ex- only an hour. Yeah, good. And it only took us uh, an, only hour. Took an hour to get to this point. <laughs> okay, intermixing explanation with critique. One of the things that he does is like, okay, there'll be these voluntary gangs no sorry <laughs> bands or volunteers will spontaneously emerge in the towns and will expropriate non-violently somehow the means of production from the capitalists and from the you know property owners and house owners and so forth and then they will voluntarily uh they will fairly and justly out of their own rationality and goodness of their heart, distribute the 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 wares and uh, the bounty. Sorry, not bounty. The properly reappropriated goods to all the members of the community based on their need. Okay, so there's a couple of things here. There's a lot of hand waving. There's there's one of the first bits of hand waving is like, well, what? Why will these people? start voluntarily associating and forming these bands. Two, why will mm. there not be any resistance? How will they overcome the resistance? Three would be like, what is a need? What is like who's who's more needy than another person of like a particular a particular, say, room or house or piece of food? And then why does one person why does uh, one person get to decide who's more needy than another or how does the collective make that decision together he doesn't answer any of these sorts of like actual questions of he just sort of he just sort of says extremely vaguely that this will happen and because people are really smart and good and stuff and if you've ever seen the workers you would know how amazing they are that they will be able to do this and they'll be able to figure it out yeah it does it seems to me to be this train of thought that quite easily falls into might makes right in that, suppose you have someone who you have you have a few 
different groups who want, I don't know, one house, suppose. Because the way that Kropotkin says you can assess need is basically someone says, I want this. And in parts of this book, he'll disagree with people like, for example, Bakunin believed that people should receive from some sort of anarchist society resources proportionate to the amount of work they do. Whereas Kropotkin disagreed and said, no, people should receive what they say they want. But you run into the problem where suppose two people both say, I want this house, and neither are amenable to mediation. The determinant of who gets that house is ultimately going to be who can muster more coercive power, whether that's in in terms of violent coercive power, so you can get a mob behind you to say, no, this person is going to have that house, or social coercive power. So within the self-organising anarchist commune, you get enough people putting pressure on one party to to basically relinquish their claim to that house in favour of the, the other party. It boils down to might makes right very easily. And to get out of this, his solution is just that. He just asserts that, well... They won't. They won't. They, that's essentially what he says. He, they won't. Which, like, this is, this is one of the weakest parts of the book. Is, yeah, in response to really difficult questions, he basically just says, well, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and his, his kind of his very loose reasoning, if you can call it that, is he says something. There's this one point in the book. Uh, I, I don't want to, like, dig through the quotes. Like, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of quotes. But essentially, he says it a few times. Roughly, he says... If you've ever seen the workers, the way that they, in, or the serfs, or the former serfs, interacting with one another and their sense of justice and how they treat one another with kindness and fairness, you will know that when these roaming bands of, of thugs, sorry, I mean volunteers, spontaneously... <laughs> <laughs> spontaneously start taking PS5s start Start stealing other... I mean, sorry, expropriating other people's property, uh, that they will just, out of a sense of justice and fairness and rationality, just know what the right decision, the moral decisions are. And that's kind of where he leaves it. He just asserts that that's the case. And then it's just like, okay, on the assumption that people just... And, of course, uh, he's assuming that other people's sense of higher morality in the future anarcho-communist revolution, that they will agree with his sense of justice and morality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and therefore they will be right. It's like, of course, but but if they don't do what he thinks, you know, what if they think, oh, well, you know, yes, this person with disabilities, like, needs this thing, except we don't really want to have a community with people with disabilities, so we're just going to kill all the people with disabilities and then we don't have to worry about that and then we'll have more stuff to share. Yeah, or like not feed them. Or not or feed them. Uh, it's like, no, well, that wouldn't happen because that isn't something that Kropotkin would agree with. So, no, that is not what they would do. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely one of the weakest parts of this book. And also with anarchism, on the whole, in my experience, like fairly admittedly limited experience of reading other anarchist books in addition to this one, that real resistance to being prescriptive with, with reference to, to many things, like how the, how the revolution should be carried out, what sort of society is going to exist post-revolution, how people should mediate disputes, etc., etc., means that very often they fall back on hand-waving and saying, oh, it'll, it'll work itself out. I don't want to be prescriptive. So can we Kropotkin bot this? <laughs> can we, can we? 
<laughs> I am Kropotkin I guess, bot. <laughs> well, the, the, the Kropotkin bot position would be in part people self-organize in so many areas and resolve disputes in so many areas. And probably the majority of disputes between people are resolved independently of the state in what is effectively an anarchist way, then why couldn't you solve these problems too? I guess it's it's really hard to say what it truly means to be making making decisions or resolving disputes independently of the state within a state apparatus, given that you do you do make these decisions or resolve disputes with the background knowledge that there exists a court system, there exists a coercive apparatus in the form of the police or ultimately the military to prevent random violence or petty acts of violence. Yeah, It's still taking place within the context of a coercive apparatus, which can be called upon. So there's also another Kropotkin bot response that I can think of, which would be something yeah, along, something along <laughs> Kropotkin bot 3000 says, uh, Jippity, ChatGPTY 4 says, oh, wait, we should have gotten ChatGPTY to... Uh, Take on <laughs> Chat Chippity Four to be, pretend to be Peter Kropotkin. Tell it to be Peter and reply Kropotkin, to yeah. our, our responses. Anyways, I'm going to take on the role of Chat Chippity, and Chat yeah. Chippity would say through Levi uh, that, and this is kind of a Marxisty answer, but potentially Kropotkin would actually say something along these lines. Well, you're only thinking that way because within the ideological superstructure of capitalism. You think that people uh, would have these sorts of wouldn't be able to dis- have these sorts of uh, amiable disagreements and and dispute yeah, resolution. These social but within a different ideological superstructure, one based on communality and you know free working people, that they actually would be able to because the actual. Yeah, so to speak, the ideological superstructure, the culture, the social norms and so forth coming out of uh, a fundamentally different economic base of uh, no private property, communally shared means of production, people will act differently and people will be able to rationally and justly resolve these disputes in a fair and equitable way without resolving into violence. But you just you haven't seen that. Kropotkin bot position because... In some ways, that could be used to justify Marxist communism, which Kropotkin disagreed with, because presumably the revolution will be taking place among a population of people who have grown up in and lived in a capitalist system of social relations and of economic relations. So in that case, having a stage of the revolution, of the dictatorship of the proletariat, where you have people who are... You have a disciplined party in control who understand what the goal is and basically sit there as as an organisation to guide people through the process of learning these social relations. Yeah, yeah. I think that that Kaprokenbot position almost justifies a Marxist communism rather than an anarcho-communism. Yeah, so that was extremely Marxist, what I just said, but I was trying to bend it to be more... Uh, less statey and just say that, okay, well, you don't need a state mm. to do it like these communes around, like these small communes will sort of have their own, so to speak, like local ideological superstructures and they'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. What about the wage system? We talk about that. He doesn't like wages. I guess we already touched on it in that he, when he says 
you shouldn't have private property and people should receive from the anarchist, I guess you call it a commune, the anarchist association of people, what they want. Their, like their, their claim on resources is to want something. He calls it need, but which is, I guess, the positively valenced way of putting it. Need, want, it, desire. In his definition of need, it's inseparable from want. And his his argument against people just making completely outrageous claims on on the anarchist organization is basically, well, they just won't. Yeah. Which I I don't really buy. People will naturally just become more austere in their tastes for some for some unknown yeah. reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead of the wage system where people get resources whether it's whether they're financial resources or their food or shelter or other sort of sorts of payment in kind for their work instead of that you you instead have want and if you want something and say okay yeah i want this much food and i want these types of food yeah. that's what you receive and that's that's what the abolition of the wage system looks like and he wants the wage system abolished in large part because it allows for exploitation. So the capitalists who own factories, for example, keep workers immiserated so that the workers will accept low wages so that the capitalists can skim off a greater amount of of surplus value from the labour. And the entire wage system encourages keeping people immiserated, whereas if you don't have wages, then I guess that, that... motive isn't there and he he levies this criticism of what he calls collectivism so i i i think broadly what he means by collectivism is marxism or some sort of state-based socialism um that still maintains that you might have money and wages it's just that the wages and the means of production come from like state ownership of some sort yeah yeah so that's his and that his problem that charge isn't just um, leveled against Marxists. It's also leveled against other anarchists like Bakunin. Yeah, who felt that there should be some sort of. He didn't call it wages. He said you you would receive from the anarchist organization food and shelter and things in proportion to how much you contribute in terms of your labor. But Kropotkin says that, that that's effectively wage labor. Yeah, and it's important that's to remember that the anarch- centralized anarchist organization is not a state. Yeah, yeah. That's why I keep I keep not saying like the the country or the state or something. You're just calling it an organization. And I mean that loosely because it's not going to be formally organized. <laughs> non the flat non hierarchical organization that definitely doesn't have a monopoly on violence and is not a state <laughs> is Yeah, it's the the Occupy Wall Street <laughs> commune. Yeah. Yeah, so so I think it, for this one, let's go back a little bit into a little bit more historical context, especially with the development mm. of economic thought. So, basically, Adam Smith comes out with The Wealth of Nations, probably one of the most important books in modern human history. And because it's the found a, found, founding book of economics, essentially, um, notwithstanding some stuff that, say, Aristotle or some other thinkers said beforehand. Um, but the question being... They're scarce resources. How are those scarce resources allocated and divided and distributed amongst the population? Mm-hmm. And how is wealth created? Probably scarce resources with alternative uses as well, because the alternative use dimension 
is really important and makes it so much more complicated. Yeah, and and then like a population with a whole bunch of varying things that they want to do with those, like have who have alternative uses or wants. Um, <clears throat> and so one of the interesting things that Smith did, like Smith, super important, like one of the most important thinkers if you're interested in understanding the way the world works. Uh, and he, importantly, he was trying to struggle, well, he was struggling with this question of, I think of it as a tripartite problem. The three parts of the problem are what is value, what is price, what is cost? Those three related things, we mm. know that they're somehow related. So you could say from whence does something on the market acquire the particular price that it has? And Smith's answer, well, one of, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, but one of Smith's, essentially Smith proposed what is called the labor theory of prices, which is to say that essentially... Yeah, which I think it's from Ricardo. Yeah, Ricardo. The, I would generalize it more to say the input theory of cost, of the, sorry, the input theory of value mm. or price, mm. the input theory of value and prices, which is to say that you have some stuff that goes into it and essentially into creating anything and say you're trading A for B. Well, if A and B, if B is the money price of A, then you would think that, okay, the price is roughly corresponding to the inputs into the production process. And there's a whole bunch of issues with that which have been basically fixed by later, um, later economists. But in particular, Marx innovated on what Smith said, and he, he honed in not just on all the inputs, factory, land, labour, and he said, well, actually, if you go back further enough in the causal chain, every factory was built by labour, and any piece of land, yeah. in order to be turned into a productive piece of land, not just like some dirt sitting around doing nothing, it has to be tilled and so forth, and, mm -hmm. and fertilised and so forth. So really, if you go back far enough in the causal chain, you'll get to labour, which I think like is a really interesting insight. And mm. obviously, I'm not a Marxist, but he uh, is very interesting thought experiment he did. And so he said, "Well, actually, everything just like boils back down to labour." And Marx had this, and Kropotkin. This will come become relevant in a tick when we get back to Kropotkin. Marx had this idea, if I remember correctly, from. Das Kapital, he said, uh, there's this thing, I think he called it value substance. You've read, you've read Capital, right, Jack? Is that what he called it, value substance? Yeah. The value substance? I don't, I don't remember his precise terminology because I, I read Capital quite a while ago, like probably about 10 years ago. He's, he's literally saying that like somehow the labour that goes into, say, any production process sort of I don't want to be magical in my like to me it sounds like he's basically having magical thinking, but like somehow the labor that goes into productive process puts this thing value substance into the final end product. And so when you sell uh, and the price basically corresponds to the value substance in the in the in the in the final product. And in particular what Marx came up with was a scheme of saying like, well, if I've produced X amount of value, as indicated by the price on the market that actually is fetched on the market when the goods are sold, 
and say I've contributed to creating 100 shares and they each sell for $10 each. So the value of my labor corresponds to $1,000 worth of shares, but I'm only paid $200. Then where did that excess value get allocated to or got allocated to the capital owner, Mm -hmm. the person who paid my wages to undertake that labor? But- you know, notwithstanding that they might have provided the factory or whatever or the other goods for me to make the chairs, they they skimmed some amount. If you like, maybe a hundred dollars got spent on the wood and a hundred dollars on maintaining the factory, then there's some amount left over that they skimmed off the top. And that there is the basis of Marxist thinking on all capitalism, all profit-seeking capitalism. The wage system in general is inherently exploitative because at the end of the day, the capital owner is taking a profit and that profit should have been actually the workers. Mm, mm. Yeah, there's, there's I probably not that, much... sorry, but that's my rough understanding at lib. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds fair. And it is, it's a problem I have with Marxism that oftentimes there's not much value or sometimes no value attached to risk and organisation. Zero. So in terms of taking a risk in building something new which isn't free, and also the value of organisation. So, yes, you can have workers working. I guess an anarchist like Kropotkin would say the workers could self-organise, but oftentimes there is a real benefit to having someone or a group of people taking the time to organise and set out some sort of organisational principles for how a group of workers will work together, which can increase output. And which isn't, again, free, but which is not counted as labour by some communists. Yeah. And therefore isn't seen as contributing value or adding value. The communists don't take into account taking on risks. They don't take into account the value of managerial labour. And they don't take into account the value of, or I don't like that word, the, um, the role. I won't say the value. I'll say the role of they basically say the role of managerial like the the mm. role of managerial labor is negligible compared to the actual say factory work and yeah. the role but of I guess entrepreneurial in judgment. in this context saying value value is probably useful because the sort of that the idea of surplus value comes about in part by looking at what the theoretical value of the labor you put in is versus the sale price yeah and of some good yeah and then saying well where is where is the additional value coming from it's not there and therefore the price must reflect some some sort of exploitation whereas in that context i'd be inclined to say well there is additional value provided by organization and risk yeah and so the reason why i shy away from using that word is because it's kind of overloaded and now I've sharpened yeah, yeah, I've yeah. sharpened the way that I think about this tripartite problem, the price value cost problem, to the point where I use the word value in my own thinking in a very specific way. Whereas mm. like to me, the way that Marx and even Smith and a lot of people, if you just talk have a casual conversation with somebody about like, well the house value, like getting a house evaluated on the Melbourne property market or something, um, like it's used in a very like loose way, but um, you can actually sharpen it up quite a lot. But anyway, so that's that's the historical background, and um, and basically Kropotkin, even though he disagrees with Marx on some things, he does use Marx's labor theory of value 
yeah. to justify or to explain why the wage system needs to be abolished. And building on that exploitation in the wage system, he actually then goes a step further and says, well, one of the key issues here is actually money in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So should we talk about money? Yeah, I, this is one of the subjects that you often shy away from, but I think I don't you're really going like to have to talk about money. Here. About it. It's not... Look, if you twist my arm, I guess I can. I suppose it's relevant to the episode, so probably should. Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> this is why I like Kropotkin, like, man after my own heart. He does notice that, like, hey, these fucking paper bits of money, like, the peasants wanted gold and they... The fucking goddamn Parisian central government tried to give them bits of paper. Like <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does not like fiat he currency. Doesn't like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's with Kropotkin. Like there are plenty of places where I don't disagree with him. It's just part of why this has been a really fun book to read. Yeah, so it's interesting because he and uh, again historical empathy and all this sort of stuff. Um, these, so let me look at my historical notes. I wrote down one of the most important books in all of economics is this book called Principles of Economics by Karl Menger, um, who was the founding father of the Austrian School of Economics. And largely speaking, the Austrian school is considered a heterodox school of economics. And even their greatest, most acclaimed um, from mainstream perspective, uh, Hayek, who was probably an Austrian economist. He doesn't fit neatly. He doesn't fit neatly. Like, he's an interesting thinker. Into the Austrian, because um, I always felt he's much more empirical than a lot of the other Austrians, but this is also not. But essentially, like, all the others, all the others, like Mises, Manga, um, now, uh, like Hopp and Hopper and stuff, um, are kind of considered a heterodox, heterodox school. Um, <clears throat> but Karl Menger was uh, published his Principles of Economics in 1871, and this book was written in 1892. Now, notwithstanding that probably cultural evolution and transmission transmission of ideas was slower in the 18th century because they didn't have the internet and that sort of thing, and presumably. I can only assume that maybe Kropotkin was reading non-Austrian economics, so like the British school and potentially like the French writers on economics he was probably reading. Mm. Hadn't gone to Hustler's University. Hadn't, hadn't, hadn't heard of Andrew Tate and become a giga chad. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of don't want to like criticise him too much, but at the same time I'm thinking like, you know, some of, I, this would be more of a general criticism of like thinkers in general over the last like 150 years in economics is they've essentially essentially ignored Manga's breakthrough. Yeah, Manga's Manga's is one of the most important thinkers in like yeah. give us the breakthrough Western civilization. So he figured out he he solved this problem of the value cost price trilemma, and the trilemma is like. Where does something get its price from? What is the true cost of something? What does it mean to value something? He realised, and it's, it's called Austrian economics, but I think the proper 
word. Well, to be in in my honest opinion, the proper thing to call Austrian economics is just to call it economics. It is just proper economics. Mm. But okay, mm. well, if I wasn't being such beginning to get a feel for <laughs> if I wasn't being such a stubborn person about it, I'd say, well, you could call it the subjectivist school of economics, as opposed to the objectivist school of economics, and not objectivism with the right and Ryan sense. What I mean is, with regards to value, the word value, the Austrians basically say. All value is subjective. Yes, the input of yeah. the input into something is an objective fact. Like it cost you ten bushels of wheat to create this bread or whatever, and that is objective. But the key thing that they like go on and on and on and on about is they say all value is subjective. Now, what is object- like to con- to concretize that? They're basically saying something is worth what someone will pay. In the moment. And so the price of something. So, okay, value is not a thing. You could think of it properly understood. It's really a process. It's an ongoing process and it's a verb. So each individual person is evaluating or valuing things in their environment and they're making trade-offs and decisions about whether or not they're willing to give up something in their possession to give something else, to get something else. And so the price of something is what is actually required to get that thing that you have to give up. So a good example is like if a book costs $10, sorry, if a book is priced at $10 and I pay $10 for that book, what I'm saying is I value the book more than I value the $10 and the shopkeeper is saying they value the $10 more than they value the book. And so he resolved this issue of like actually – you can have um, an objective price at the moment of a transaction that says the price of that book was $10 and the price of the $10 was that book. And the book is more valuable than the $10 from the perspective of the person purchasing the book and vice versa for the person selling the book. And so because of this, you actually have value, which is subjective. You have price, which is what was given up at the moment of the transaction by the transacting parties, and you have cost. And cost really should be thought of as opportunity cost. So you might have given up $10 to buy the book. However, that wasn't what the book cost you. The book cost you all of the things that you could have done, the alternative uses of that $10. So I could have bought a sandwich with the $10. I could have bought more mobile credit with the $10. I could have bought an OnlyFans subscription for $10. <laughs> and yeah. I, I actually gave up all of those things in order to get the book. But the price was $10. Like, <laughs> does that make sense? So there's actually... A- As a better example, how about we use a theoretical book club podcast <laughs> and a Patreon account. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. That's, a good, that's a good thing to consider because also one, like it's, it's an obvious corollary of what you're saying, but it is really important that value or cost or price, all these things in this context are not static. No. They change based on immedi- on the moment and what someone's, needs or desires and means in that moment yeah. are. And so the one, the, they put it like this, the water diamond paradox, which is what Manga resolved in the principles of economics by making this distinction between price, cost, and value. And the water diamond paradox is just, if water's absolutely necessary for life, you don't drink it, you'll die. But diamonds are not 
available for life, why do diamonds cost more or, or why do they fetch a high price on the market? And Manga basically said, well, they're not more, more or less valuable because value is in the eyes of the beholder. And in the context of somebody who has access to clean drinking water for next to no marginal cost, say like a person living in a metropolitan city, city in a developed country, you know, water is abundant and essentially free. And so they don't, they're not going to value the next marginal unit of water, but they might value the next marginal unit of some diamonds they could buy because they want to create a wet ring or something. They, they look, look nice. nice or they, they're hedging against inflation or some shit like that. But it's <laughs> <laughs> the first thing you think. <laughs> well, I have to. I don't value diamonds, so I like. I have to try to think from other people's point of view. Um, and uh, but in the in a desert, if somebody's dying of thirst and they have a chest of diamonds on them that they've just dug out of the ground, and then they're like, you come up to them and you say, okay, well, I've got three liters of water here. This will get you to the next town, but in return for the, this three liters of water, I want your entire chest of diamonds. And if they don't take the trade, mm, they're going to die. My kingdom. <laughs> what are they going to say? You tell them I'm all about that ice. They can keep that water themselves. <laughs> um, they just bear their grills at you. <laughs> yeah. Bury me with my ice. And on. so I don't care if that I person is going to make that trade, hypothetically. So there's two important mm. breakthroughs. The value is all value is subjective. And the other thing is the marginal analysis, which mainstream economic economists actually did pick up on. And marginal analysis is basically saying you never actually make a decision about what you would do with all water supply and all diamond supply. You only ever decisions are only ever made at the margin. You only think about the next unit of the good that you're going to purchase or sell. And so because of these two things together, manga's like unbelievably important. And his insights, I think, were have essentially been ignored for the last 150 years. And it's only the Austrians, the hardcore libertarians, and now the Bitcoiners who have taken those insights on board. And whether or not it's just ignorance and just like Kropotkin and his and the other socialists and stuff throughout the late 19th century and 20th century just didn't know about these things, which I think is probably unlikely. Or, you know, a lot of the times they just dismissed economists as just like talking heads for the bourgeois so yeah they ignore this and that's one of the key things that makes yeah. Kropotkin's yeah. thinking just completely fucked it just doesn't work yeah well, it's I won't say it's completely f- fucked I'd say his his ability to identify problems is good and he does he identifies things that are still relevant today but his proposed solutions I think often leave a bit to be desired, in large part because they're just so nebulously defined. Yeah, sorry. I, by completely fucked, I was re- referring specifically, not with regards to pro- identifying, like, some social problems and stuff. Okay. Uh, sorry, that was a little bit... <laughs> sorry, I was, on a, I was on a roll there. Uh, what I meant is with regards to things like the, la- the wage system... Let's make more precise yeah. what's completely fucked. Okay, so in particular what I'm referring to is <laughs> when he talks about things like, you know, the community, the roving... Uh, bands of thugs slash volunteer um, saints will be able to expropriate some property and then reallocate the output of the capital or whatever that's been expropriated. That they'll do it based on people's needs in some nebulous sense. Mm-hmm. Because of his 
not understanding. Well, they might do it based on needs, but probably their own. Their own needs or what the what the money system allows. The medium of ex- the use of a medium of exchange as a technology for indirect indirect exchange, and the price system that emerges out of that money as a consequence of using it as a unit of account. What that does is it allows everybody in a decentralized manner to make their own local decisions about what things, what trade-offs they're willing to make. And they do that by performing economic calculation using the prices on the market. So I might think, well, I really want four liters of milk, but I really only have enough money for three liters of milk. So I'm going to buy that and use the leftover money to buy some wheat bix or something. That entire coordination is done through the price system, and it can it'll enable basically like scalably billions of people to coordinate their own local actions in response to the minimal amount of economic information they need transmitted via the price system. And because of that, he doesn't understand that. And this is why I think historical empathy, like it was Hayek and Mises who really crystallized this in the mid 20th century. He didn't have that. He didn't realize that like when you abolish money and the prices subsequently, you actually completely um, destroy decentralized decision-making and trade-offs to be made at this abstract level. Like Mm. this is literally the technology that allows the decentralization of resource allocation and decision-making. Yeah, it's good that you brought that up because that was actually one of the things that he's he has identified correctly, but then then fallen down on in terms of the solutions he proposes is a coordination problem in terms of economics. In that, so for example, when he brings up the question of what does it mean to have an oversupply of food when there are people are star- when people are starving, so. He says it doesn't make sense that a farmer will produce a certain amount of food but then won't produce more because it's uneconomical for the farmer even when someone doesn't have food in, I don't know, in that society or within a certain geographic radius of wherever the farmer is farming. He says that that doesn't make sense and that the way to solve it is expropriation and the abolition of private property. To me, it's... He's describing a coordination problem in that there is someone making a good which is desired or needed by someone else, and those two things aren't coordinated. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, yeah, to me, the coordination, because I'm a filthy capitalist who quite likes the the Austrian school of economics, (laughs) would be to say that, yeah, the problem is that the, the price signals there aren't being coordinated well enough. And the way of getting those desired and needed goods to the people who want them is also not not as coordinated as it could be. And to be fair, like maybe it is in fact the case that the people were so poor that they didn't have the money to buy the things at a price that made sense Mm. for the producers. And that is like that does suck, and it sucks when that happens. The problem with Kropotkin that he didn't realise is the thing that fixes that is more capitalism. And in fact, what we're at, we're at a point now with such advanced capitalism that, at least according to some people's analyses, there's not famine. There's no longer famine caused by 
economic or natural causes, then now we only have famines that are caused by like mm. war, war or p- politics, basically like the government. Yeah, if you fucking Venezuela. Yeah, states stepping in and fucking with the price system. But in terms of like the actual output of our productive systems and like the network of um, distribution and all this sort of stuff and how just unbelievably cheaper calorie is in many parts of the world, like we don't need, po- like we shouldn't really have poverty anymore except in the case of when there's war or something like that. Um, and so that has actually been solved by deepening of the market, by broadening of the market and a deepening of specialization and all that sort of stuff. And that's been solved by capitalism. What he didn't realize, so to play not Kropotkin bot, but like kind of devil's advocate on behalf of Kropotkin, this is really yeah. fucking complex stuff. Like, this is not. <laughs> <laughs> it is so complex that I would say that a planning body can't plan it yeah. because a single body can't possibly know. So there's. But again, like I'm definitely showing my ideological slant. There's there's that. three things. If we think back to somebody who lived in the mid to late nineteenth century, what was the population of the world back then? Like a billion people, at most. Like I, I mean, I could look it up, but I'm I'm not going to because I'm lazy. <laughs> um, like let's keep it in a nice round. A billion number. people. Let's call it a billion. Let's call it yeah. Let's call it a billion people because I think it doubled like three times last century. Um, so. No, mustn't have done that. Doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so let's just call it a billion people. Let's call it let's X. Call, let's call it X. <laughs> <laughs> let's just take numbers out of it. Um, and so, and it, he's also writing before Mises, like, basically solved all these problems and completely just exploded communism and socialism. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so there, there's two there's two really hard issues here. One, it's a complex issue, and we're always dealing with our own local information and our own local perspective. And the really big intellectual breakthroughs, part of the reason why they're so insightful, whether it's Hayek or you know, like in the natural sciences, people make these sorts of breakthroughs, is they're able to look at things more abstractly and they're able to see past their own local information or as David Deutsch would say, their own parochialism, and they see something more universal, more abstract. And when we've said all the stuff about like the price system and the coordination of like, you know, actors across the world and all this sort of stuff, that's us taking abstract explanations from thinkers who have already come before us who actually figured these really complex issues out. And he didn't have that benefit. And he was basically looking at a world that was coming out of the Middle Ages and had lots of injustices and lots of violence. And he was seeing, like, people starving, some people starving, and some people living in, like, manners. And he was saying, like, well, this is really unjust, it's really unfair. And also, then there's the coordination issue as well. And so that would have, to have some empathy Mm. for him, like, that would have been essentially, like, distressing, to say the least, but also confusing and hard hard to crack as a problem. And so he thought that, like, well, this aristocratic class has all this property and now these capitalists have this means of production and there's these people starving. So maybe the issue here is those people owning those things and taking it off others. Yeah, and it's a sort of system which probably takes quite a while to reach some sort of equilibrium in that if you have a group of people who are entering into the system with far more accumulated wealth than others... That's going to take a long time to start 
redistributing. And when I say redistributing, I don't mean in a coerced no. way, but yeah, redistributing within. And the, the other system. thing, sorry, the the other thing that they were witnessing, which Smith touched on as well, but the Luddites touch on, and like all these people talk about with, like especially isolationists, who talk about like protecting local economies and stuff, is this idea of creative destruction, and this is one of again one of those really important insights from the economists. Um, who it's basically the idea that as the market develops and there's innovations, especially innovation, uh, innovation basically makes some production processes or some consumer goods redundant, essentially redundant. And so it's creative, like innovation is a creative act, but it causes the destruction of some other part of the economy. Um, not destruction in like setting fire to things, but in terms of like, well, one part of one industry or one part of the economy becomes, you know, less competitive than another part. And in the case... Mm. Well, tying back to what you were saying earlier, you could say that people just aren't willing to pay as much money for those things yeah, anymore. They're being if displaced. Either they can be produced for a much lower price with this new creative method or something has been created which just supersedes whatever was previously commanding some sort and of And so price. the Luddites and, you know, also like the, the Marxists and stuff, they, or the early Marxists, are kind of grappling with like seeing, say you know, like these weavers or whatever being put out of work by machines. And that is something that capitalism does. It, it, like, it, if you let it rip, there'll be more and more innovation and higher and higher forms of productivity. But in that process, whilst we create more productive output in the long term, in the short to intermittent terms, like there'll be local patches of the economy that will turn down. Mm. And it's a, this can bring us around actually to the question of innovation under capitalism versus anarchism, because this is an this is something that he spends a lot of time, or he, Kropotkin, spends a lot of time in this book talking about, because to his mind, capitalism severely holds back technological innovation. So he was talking about the examples of farming. So he was saying capitalism holds back the adoption of new agricultural methods, which could dramatically improve crop yields per unit area of farmland because capitalism wants to keep workers poor and a, a way to do this is by keeping food prices very, very high or keeping people starving so that they're willing to accept very low wages in return for their labour. Conversely, under an anarchist system, people would innovate and not only innovate theoretically but apply innovations in practice for the joy of innovation and because they would want to improve the output available to an anarchist society such that other people could benefit from these improvements in in productive methods and technologies i think it one one advantage of capitalism is that it makes things quite competitive and provides quite clear incentives for people to take risks on new technologies and apply them and in doing so makes technological advancement happen more quickly than if those sorts of incentives weren't as sharp. And it can be sharp to the point where, say, your company will go out of business if you're in some sort of competitive field and one of your competitors comes up with a method to produce whatever you're producing for a lower cost. It's it's a very, very clear competition, which tends to drive at least a certain portion of people to technologically innovate to get an edge on their competition. 
Yeah, so notwithstanding... And, sorry, did you want to finish that off? Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, I'm just not sure that that will be the case if if you have an anarchist society where those where basically those sorts of goods are guaranteed. Essentially, okay, so I'm going to put aside the fact that this is a, a bit of the book where he gets a bit hand-wavy again as well. Like, just saying that people will innovate for the joy of yeah. it is just, like, such a... Like... like my problem with the hand wavy stuff is why couldn't I just hand wave some alternative beha- behavior? Yeah, well, you could anything. hand wave in people will become static. Yeah. Or you could hand wave in no people will start innovating in order to just like hurt one another. And I ha- because he doesn't provide any real reason, underlying mechanism why people should beha- innovate benevolently other than just because, then why should your opponent say something more productive than that? Yeah. And that, we'll get to it later, he does avoid, basically in all of this book, the problem of violence, and particularly the problem of violence from groups opposed to the, um, to the anarchist commune. So he does, he does refer to it in, so he says, okay, so suppose Paris had an anarchist yeah. revolution. He sets out how Paris could become self-sufficient in terms of food, in terms of energy, clothing, housing. Even if the the peasants surrounding Paris remained reactionary or remained conservative and wouldn't trade with Paris, but he doesn't go into what would happen if those groups tried invading or tried much more forcibly trying to coerce in this case the anarchist commune of paris to to give up anarchism yeah, and so so with regards to the the like innovation stuff. There's there's two key things that he didn't under again, historical empathy, he didn't have these insights available to him. But the two key insights are that one Mises calls it the 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 calculation problem. And the calculation problem is essentially just like if you don't have a money system So what what is what is a pro- the price system actually doing? It's communicating the changes in scarcity of all the different things in the economy to everybody locally, it's compressing the information into a single objective output, the price, and that price is being propagated across the entire system very rapidly. But that price system comes from the fact that people are using a medium of exchange to perform their economic calculations. And so if you don't have a medium of exchange to perform your economic calculations, like saying, I want, I'm going to go and buy this many bushels of wheat for this amount of money so that I can go and do this other thing and I think I can sell it for this amount of money on the market, you, you actually can't do that coordination. Like Mises basically, there's a whole chapter on this in Human Action, which basically lays out this entire argument. And to me, it's like the decisive factor why like socialism or at least any system that abolishes money, just it'll just fall into poverty because the price system is actually helping everybody coordinate their actions. Um, but the on top of that, there's this additional element, which is, again, this is a Mises, Mises insight. He said uh, the problem of cap, like cap, he said uh, capitalism is not a managerial system. It's an entrepreneurial system. And the problem with the socialists is that they thought it was a managerial system. They thought it was all about managing resources 
and allocating them and reallocating them and basically keeping account of all the resources and then giving them to people. But it's not a managerial system. Management plays an important role, but it's an entrepreneurial system. And what we mean by entrepreneurial is that people have to make judgments under uncertainty. So every time uh, an entrepreneur gets a business loan or like takes their own capital and goes out to do something, they're at risk of losing that capital. And whether or not it turns out to be a good venture, they have to take on that risk. They might lose their capital, they might get rewarded. But that entrepreneurial judgment, that willingness to like take on the uncertainty of the market, that is a that is completely destroyed when you get rid of money. You can't actually like do that entrepreneurial function, except in perhaps an extremely limited like local sense. And so his entire concept of like Kropotkin's entire concept that people will just innovate. Why am I saying this entrepreneurial stuff? Because one of the driving factors of innovation in our economy is entrepreneurs realizing, hey, I could build this new technology. I don't actually know if it'll work, but my judgment says that I think that it'll work. And you get millions of those people doing that every now and then somebody figures something out that works. And that's what's driving innovation. Whereas he's just completely removed the technology that enables that from his, his ideal society. How about, okay, I'll be Kropotkinbot and approach this from, from the, the moral standpoint. So he, he says that what allows one person to say that this particular thing belongs to them and that they can benefit from its use or charge other people for its use or restrict its use when not only, not only is that, so I suppose it's a piece of machinery, not only is that piece of machinery the result of the labour, the physical labour of the people who built it, but it's also the result of the, the mental labour of perhaps the person who thought it up, but also the labour of the people who taught the inventor of that particular thing and then the people who farmed the food that fed the inventor of that particular thing. And this stretches back on and on and on to the point where this particular machine really becomes the common inheritance of humanity. So even if even if a system might theoretically function better if it has um if it has this capitalist organization, which as as we've already alluded to, or said explicitly, he thought actually it would function worse if it were capitalist rather than anarchist. But even if it might function better if it's capitalist, ethically it's it's hard to defend, given that these things are the common inheritance yeah, of everyone. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting... Like, that was that was actually one of the more interesting parts of the book because I've... Yeah, yeah, and I've that's near the start. I've heard people casually, like, uh, my left-leaning friends, left-leaning, like, really leftist, anarcho- and socialist-y sort of types make the common inheritance argument or something in that realm. And I think it's kind of... On a surface level, you can I, I can understand that there's this element of uh, it's kind of intuitive. Like, yeah, we're all a part of so like we're you know, there no man is an island there except for Satoshi. Who's <laughs> just lone lone soul. But no, no, no. Well, I mean, he's not, because money is an inherently social technology. So um the common inheritance argument is really interesting because it, it is true on one level, which is we all do benefit from the accumulation of 
capital, the building up of infrastructure, the creation of buildings that last decades or centuries. And we benefit from the work of our ancestors or, you know, depending on what country you're in, like the the ancestors of like the current inhabitants or whatever. Um, and that is true. But the reason where it breaks down is that each step along the way towards creating this com- this large common inheritance has been there have been obviously elements of like totalitarianism and you know like all that sort of stuff um but where it falls down is like well how do we keep on building it and a lot of this stuff was built through property rights and so when one person say gives up say they've built a machine and then they give up that machine for you know an ounce of gold to somebody who then goes and use say say it's during the 18th century and and you know like the the rise of steam engines and say like an inventor has created a machine and they're selling these machines for an ounce of gold to each person the person who buys the ounce the the machine for the ounce of gold and then goes and uses the machine to create 3 ounces of gold worth of revenues like the person who sold them that machine in the first place gave relinquished their property right on that machine when they engaged in the exchange. And so the issue is that all along the way, like there's transactions and transfers of property. And so, yeah, we benefit from the buildup of this, all of this, but of this like collective uh, inheritance, as he says, but like, I don't have a claim on somewhat like say, I don't know, somebody else's house or whatever, even though I could say that like, well, that house was built by somebody else a hundred years ago because all along the way there's been transfers of property mm. rights. Mm. Which I guess Kropotkin views as illegitimate anyway. He, yeah. And there are, there are questions of like the legitimacy of transfers of property rights, even amongst libertarian thinkers. They think through like, are there times when, property rights are violated and it means that a transaction is invalid or whatever, those sorts of things. And those are interesting questions. But this kind of nebulous, you just, uh, it leads you to, well, inevitably it leads to just collectivization of all the means of production. So you have to like come after the property rights. And whenever I talk to anybody about this sort of stuff, they inevitably dislike property rights in various forms. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, if if you say, like, we're going to abolish property because we think it's inherently evil, then I suppose, like, the collective inheritance thing probably makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It This was one of the more interesting parts of the book because it does make you really question the the foundations of your society. And there's definitely been times when, like, I, I'm not all, like, rosy goggles about it, you know, like, the period of colonisation, for example, is a mark on human history where, like, Capitalism was doing some good stuff, but then there are also like lots of, you know, like the West Indies trading company, like they did lots of really horrible stuff, ostensibly in the name of, you know, their corporation. And so you could say, well, capitalism was doing that, except at least a libertarian thinker or like a Austrian economist would say, no, they were, say like in the case of Australia, like when the British came and claimed land, what they did in fact, if I would put it in Western terms, like because I'm from Sydney, which is like ground zero of colonisation in, in Australia. Like, I, if I wanted to put 
the issue into the colonization issue into Western terms, I would say like my ancestors' property rights were violated by the colonists. And they actually like did not like they actually broke their own Western ethic <laughs> by by violating the property rights of the existing owners of that land. They might not have been using it in a way that they recognized as property, but there's a whole conversation about that with the Terra Nullius stuff. But like colonization, I could make the I would make the argument that like a lot of colonization was actually like the part of the reason why it was so fucked up is because of the violation of property rights. I wonder then from a from an anarcho-communist position, if the co- like uh, the, the, this sort of situation I can't really ever see happening, but for for the sake of an interesting hypothetical, suppose if the colonists came and took the property of First Nations Australians, but basically communalized it so everyone had an equal claim to it, would that for an anarcho-communist be okay? Oh, that's <laughs> so, that's like, a weird idea. First Nations Australians would have a like a much lesser claim to their resources because now you know however many colonists also now have claims to it but everyone there's no property rights everyone has equal claims to those things is that like is that okay colonization yeah that's really weird because if you just say well there's no property rights then couldn't you just like walk around just being like i'm now living here well i guess that's why that's why like in berlin and stuff you go for yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like there there is there is a branch of, of anarchism which says so she can just do that. Does tend yeah, to and like all the squatting rights and stuff in, in places like Berlin. Where it's just like, yep, now I'm living here. Yeah. And uh yeah, well those places suck. So I don't know, like <laughs> like Berlin's a cool city and it's fun to party in and, and stuff, but also like their apartments and stuff are all shitty because they're fucking over the landlords. And like, is that just called shitty, shitty rental laws? So, I don't know. If you want to live in a crappy city like Berlin, go right the fuck ahead. But, like, if you want to live in a city with good houses where the, the landlords have the rights to kick out, like, shitty tenants, then, like, go and live somewhere else. But, I don't know, like, this idea that... Okay, so let me think. So, we're, we're colonists. We're going to go over to the new world and we're, we're not going to steal their mm. property because... Yeah, like they can they can use the boats and things. That yeah, so they, they have a claim for that. <laughs> so they too. were just like, you can have our boat and you can just sail off into wherever you want, and we'll just be here. Like, you don't necessarily <laughs> understand this technology, but, but have, have at it. it. And we're just going to sit here now. That's on the assumption that like the people who are inhabiting that land are just like, yeah, cool with that, and that they don't just say, no, get the fuck off our land. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's when you have to start explaining to them that, <laughs> that property they rights need, are they actually... They need to understand. That's when you start handing out copies of the Conquest of Bread to First Nations Australians. <laughs> it's like, listen, I know you don't understand this language. <laughs> you can, you've got to yeah, understand yeah, yeah. Captain why you need to accept that we also own this property collectively well we not none well, of you own this property. you, see, you don't it's own the it. it's, co- not it's the collective inheritance of all mankind <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a it's an extremely extremely but, european philosophy yeah yeah can you imagine it's like one of the people meeting the first fleet like eventually learns english and then like is trying to understand them explaining to this particular person, the principles of anarcho-communism and why actually everyone owns everything 
in common. It's the common inheritance, which is why this group of strangers now is living on your <laughs> land. Well, you know, the weird thing is, like, in there are, like, parallels at a... If I look at some extant communities that live in various forms of... Uh, I don't know if you want to say tribal, but like, you know, they still they still practice, um, say, like their pre-European spirituality and, and various forms of like social structures and all that sort of stuff. There is a kind of, in some parts of the country, or if you just look over like the anthropological records written by Europeans, but like I guess like taking them in good faith because um, you don't really have a better strategy, like. Uh, there were elements of of these societies, uh, or are elements of this society that are kind of communist or anarchistic in in mm, many ways. Mm. Um, but there's there's still property, like, and there's still hierarchies and stuff. <laughs> so it's not completely. But I would say that's more of a consequence of like being small populations. Like a lot of this stuff can work in very yeah, small yeah, populations yeah. where you have like, for example, in a lot of Aboriginal communities in Australia. Like there's this, there's these things called kinship systems and these kinship systems can be really complex, but they're basically like inherited and involved systems of assigning social roles to people based on like their inheritance within uh, like the community, but it has stuff to do with like spirituality and stuff. And so it might be like, well, you're this particular skin name because your father was this skin name and your mother was this skin name. And so you have this social role. <clears throat> Those sorts of things can... So then we can allocate you, like, this role in society and you might be eligible to have, like, you know, these claims on the community. Um, but that stuff can work when you have, like, a kinship system or when you have small families or even in, like, the Western atomic family... Or, sorry, nuclear family. Like you have a very small number of people with concrete relationships with one another. But as soon as you start scaling up to the point where it's like, well, what if you have like a hundred, say tribes, if you took a hundred Aboriginal nation, first nations peoples and they all have different kinship systems and then they wanted to form like a government or a state or something, it's like, well, what kinship system are we going to use? They, they wouldn't use a kinship system. They'd have to come up with some other form of governance that's abstract and doesn't have anything to do with their kinship systems in order for them to do that. And so as you get bigger and larger like populations with less and less common inheritance culturally, you have to have more and more abstract, basically, technologies and rules of engagement to the point where I just don't think it's at all feasible to do what Kropotkin is saying, even in the 18th, 19th century in Europe when you're talking about populations of hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And again, like Europe, very, 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 very complex kinship systems historically and social relations and all that sort of stuff. You basically just brought up a point I was wanting to make at some point in this episode where, well, again, it's sort of what I was referring to earlier with the coordination problem is it with these sorts of anarchist ideas, they probably could work on a small scale where people have enough buy-in and know each other. So there is, there's some sort of social regulation yeah, going on in terms of people's behaviour. Yeah. But if if you had a population the size of I don't know, Australia in twenty twenty three, it's about twenty five and a half million people. You just you can't have some sort of social regulation going on between enough of those people to make sure people 
behave in in the sort of way that would lead to a society that you would want to live in. It it just feels like there there's not really a scalable coordination Crow solution bot. from Anakin three thousand is going to respond to this. This is Levi's Kropotkin. So, yeah, yes, please. And he does sort of touch on this in the book. He says uh, he talks about the communes in like he talks a lot about in the in the countryside, but eventually affecting the metropolitan centres as well. I I think he would say something along the lines of, well, there'll be lots of decentralised, small scale communities where they in fact can do that mm. do these things because they do have concrete relationships with their neighbors so you might be talking about on the scale of hundreds or even maybe communities of like a few thousand people could potentially do this because you could then lean on not direct concrete relations but at least communal reputation and if you have mm. many of these fairly small communities distributed around doing their own communal private um expropriation and reallocation of the means of production and each one of those are like communicating and interfacing with one another then you would have then it would work but you don't need this like one overall like across all of france or all of germany or whatever you don't need that i think that's that's a possible solution but i guess then we run into that problem you were saying earlier you were talking about earlier when we were discussing the expropriation during the revolution it works so long as people behave in the way that Kropotkin wants them yeah, to behave. Yeah, but they will. But there's not really they much will, stopping one, one particular commune deciding to invade another commune. No, but haven't you ever witnessed the good, kind heart and wise soul of a worker in the field and how just and fair they are when they're distributing their leftover wares of their toil? Haven't you seen that? You know they're going to act fair when they interact with another Jack. So the thing is... I think, broadly speaking, people as individuals are overwhelmingly kind. They don't like. They don't want to go out of their way to hurt other people. Oftentimes, they will go out of their way to help other people. The thing is, when you start getting people organising into groups, they tend to get a whole lot crueler. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something he didn't deal with and, in this book. And this thing where oh, people will organise into communes, and those communes will interact with each other peaceably it strikes me that in organizations is exactly when human beings start behaving at their worst <laughs> like you're you're organizing a group of organs that make people behave in a much less humane yeah. way to each other and then making those interact yeah. and to my like a granted Krokenpot would probably say this is because i've been indoctrinated into a a capitalist way of thinking about social relations but to me that just sounds like a recipe to have those communes start invading each other or fighting with each other. Yeah, and what if one commune says we've got like this historical claim because you know some part of our ancestry like lived over in here where that's now currently being occupied by this other commune and we want that part of our land back, you know. And there's plenty of parts in Europe where that's that's the case. Like in Czech, right? There's there's Czech and uh Oh, bas- basically, yeah. Like you get Czech people talking about parts of Poland that should definitely yeah. belong right. to the Czech people. So imagine if it, there wasn't it's an, just a nation state Europe. EU thing there, like, and they were just a bunch of communes. Like, do you reckon that the, like, the people would have? Yeah. Well, I don't have to ask that question in the abstract. That that has happened throughout the course of human history. <laughs> that is just European <laughs> and, history. Yeah. Because then you could say, oh well, 
it's good to organise such that you have a defensive capability to discourage others from trying that. The problem is once you have that sort of defensive capability, people might start thinking, oh, well, what do we have all these attack helicopters for? Sitting around, (laughs) feeling sad that they're not flying around shooting people. Yeah, so this is... Just a bit, you're you're wasting these. A poor starving child in Africa could be using this attack helicopter and you've got it and you're you're wasting it. Um, Yeah, so this is why he says at the beginning, or probably multiple places, but I remember early on in the beginning of the book, he says, we are utopians. We are unashamedly utopians. And the problem with utopianism, there's a couple of, there's many problems, but one, there's, I can think of three main problems off the top of my head that I'd say make utopianism in general just completely dysfunctional. One, who sets the standards for what is utopian? Two is who gets to plan and, and then execute that plan? And then three, what if your idea of utopia is wrong and you need to change your plan? It is interesting in that those questions tend to come back to questions of authority, which is something that anarchism seeks to address by saying that you shouldn't have organised, institutionalised systems of authority with coercive power over others. But almost the the internal calculus of anarchism presupposes that there is some authority in terms of how you should behave. Yeah, or that somehow you'll just magically do the right thing. Yeah. That there is a right way to act. it's socialist anarchism without property rights. So at least, like, I've been reading some anarcho-capitalists and, like, hardcore libertarianism. <laughs> and, you know, it's, in, like, a, a, it's challenging. Like, some of it's pretty out there thinking. But, you know, one of the key points, at least, they resolve some of these issues by, saying, by like, referring to property rights. And I don't know if I think it all stacks up. I mean, I've got to read a little bit more of it to make a decision. But... You know, like, to me, at least some of the functioning parts of, like, Western society is the reason why you can have, say, the Mormons and the Nation of Islam and Pentecostals and atheists and communists and entrepreneurs all living in a country like, you know, like, obviously, Australia, the US, those sorts of countries all living together is because those countries have struck this balance between having an abstract form of governance and government that like largely tries not to discriminate based on arbitrary grounds and also people have property rights and they can make their own local decisions about like, well, I want to live in an Amish community and just hang out with Amish people and maybe we'll sell our wares to the outside world and use that to live our Amish lifestyle. But we're not actually going to tell other people to be Amish. Like it's like some of the stuff that Crop Hopkins trying to do is actually supported by giving communities and individuals stronger property rights and i'd say like a lot of the issues that he's pointed out come from the fact that huge parts of the population in russia was something like 30 percent of the population were serfs government serfs that doesn't include private serfs so Mm. when you have an entire part of the population that historically not only did not have property rights but they themselves were property of others tied in the case of serfdom you're tied to the land rather than tied to the individual like the issue there was that those people didn't have property rights. It wasn't because these other people had property rights. 
So this, the solution to the, a lot of the things that he's saying is not to take away property rights from the people who do have property rights, it's to strengthen property rights for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned earlier that he, he said that there were all sorts of different revolutions that could happen, but only one revolution could be successful. The one with bread. How about we talk a bit about what a successful revolution to, Kropotkin, to Kropotkin would look like? Yeah. Because he does... It's, it's a combination of hand-waving and, for an anarcho-communist, a surprising amount of prescription that he offers when it comes to what a successful revolution yeah. looks like. He says that probably the biggest killer of any revolution is the the question of bread. So in during the, the heady early days of revolution, when everyone's full of revolutionary fervor, they're willing to undergo all sorts of privations and deprivations because they, they're hopeful for the future. But if people get hungry enough, they're going to become disillusioned with the revolution. And then the forces of counter-revolution can start filling people's heads with reactionary ideas like, well, you got more food before the revolution, so why don't you turn against it? And so for Kropotkin, it's vitally important during the revolution to secure enough food for, for the average person. And the way this is done is by expropriating um, food. So you talked earlier about how you would have groups of volunteers, as he, he calls them somewhat euphemistically, People who volunteer to take other people's stuff and distribute it. Groups of volunteers will take stock of all of the food stores within a particular geographic area and then distribute those on the basis of need. And that keeps people fed in the initial parts of the revolution, but also very quickly people need to start working out how to start using the land in their area to start making food. And because anarchism naturally tends towards the utilisation of more efficient technologies of production than capitalism, they're going to start using land in more effective ways and using more advanced forms of agriculture to produce more per unit area of farmland. Like with, with that part, I guess, I guess it, it might just be because I've grown up in a society where there is a greater degree of organisation when it comes to utilising land that I've, I have a hard time seeing how that's going to be coordinated without property rights and without any sort of institution designating which parts of the land will be used for farming yeah. without one of those two coordination yeah, methods. He, okay, so... I guess that's, that's, the, that's the objection that, that Kropotkin so he, would have. He, uh, he... Against- Correctly identified mm. that, hey, starvation and privation, pretty bad for a revolution. <laughs> Could you yeah. Can- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah, going to kill a- the revolution. Yeah, that's true. And that's true. That he, did, he identified that that's, that's how counter-revolutionary forces can start breaking down people's revolutionary um, fervor. But it's just like when you wipe out... Is it- Okay, ideology, ideology. I know, very Levi's very ideological. It's basically like you, you wipe, wipe out, out the mechanism the, for coordination. Almost the, yeah, the mechanism for generating things or producing things. So you wipe that out and then you have to work out how to generate things using a new but system. Again, I'm going to speak just purely from the benefit of an extra 150 years of 
intellectual development in our world. Like, so, <laughs> so criticize him. He's not an idiot. What do you mean? I, I love judging people in the past based on what we believe today. <laughs> He's not an idiot. He was just like ignorant given the time that he was no no he's far from it no this is this is a worthwhile book but like, one of the things it. that he says when he's talking about this problem is he's like okay the roaming bands of thugs i mean sorry volunteers will go in and still i mean expropriate the means of production and the factories and you'll get the factory he says you'll t- tell the factory workers we're going to secure for you your food and you guarantee them that they're going to get their food and then you say, okay, but you need to start making stuff for the farmers because they need to keep on making the food. So that's that's part of the problem. And But just before that, or along the way, but in, especially before that, the, the volunteers, quote-unquote, need to <laughs> go in and, and take stock of the current, like take uh, account of the current stock of bread. I'm just going to use bread. Mm. An orderly, An orderly inventory. inventory. I'm just going to use bread. I think you can think of the word bread as not just food, but in general, like necessities, consumable necessities for life. So that would mean bread and food, but more generally, it would also mean just like clue, internet, um, food, um, Pornhub, uh, Bitcoin, all those things that one yeah, needs to yeah. survive. <laughs> the, basics. the basics. And uh, so somebody got, they go in. They, they take over the factory and the storehouses. They take account of all the food and all the bread. How much Pornhub is here? How many units of Pornhub <laughs> does, this, does this capitalist pig have? And they start allocating it to people. What he doesn't, he doesn't think through is, uh, I'm just going to use a computer science term, but it's, it's called a com- computational complexity. Is like okay. How does how much computational power do you need to calculate a particular algorithm to like perform a particular algorithm as the size of the input to that algorithm scales? And in this case, part of what the price system is actually doing is it's essentially like another way of putting it is it's allowing us not to do certain computations. And those computations that we need to do would be the computations that Kropotkin is saying that his bands of volunteers should do, which is go in and take stock of absolutely everything, take stock of every single person and their needs, and then distribute that information out to everybody before those stockpiles of food go rotten, take back everybody's requests, and then assign in some way based on pri- some like criterion of priority to everybody as that much as they quote-unquote need. That is actually like no small task. Like if you're talking about 10 people, maybe you could do it, but how does that scale to 100 people or, or 1,000 people or a town of 10,000 people? Okay, a town of 10,000 people is going to have tons of wheat. It's going to have tons of corn or whatever the local thing is. It's going to have hundreds of cattle, hundreds of sheep. It's going to have 10,000 people. They're all going to have different wants. Like this just gets to the point of just the actual sitting down and thinking through how to do this, the computational complexity and how much management that would need would basically absorb all of their labor to figure that out. And this is pre-computers, this guy's writing. like that, And he's also talking about people who are probably not very literate and probably not numerate. And who are hungry. 
and who are hungry and who are in the middle of a potentially violent revolution. Like, he just didn't think at all through, like, the practicality of this stuff. Okay, so I'll... I'll answer yeah, this. Yeah, Kropotkin bot. <laughs> first of all, as, as Kropotkin bot. I love this. We should do this every episode. And then, and then I'll offer, my, yeah, based on my pioneering work as an oven bot, <laughs> we've worked. <laughs> and, then, and then I'll offer an answer against Kropotkin bot as Jack bot. <laughs> and I'll be, sim- I'll be simulating Jack using my brain. <laughs> So as Kropotkin bot, I, he said that you're not actually calculating what people need because it's going to be, well, you're not, yeah, you're not going to calculate what people need because you, that is done by the person who wants something. So they're going to come up to whichever place is distributing food and just say what they want. And so it can be distributed on that basis. So you're not actually First having to calculate- rest. Yeah, basically, you're not going to have to calculate what what all of the different needs of this of, of how many people you're administering to or not administering to. Y- you would be administering, but it's it's not it's not, and it's not centralized. It's not and there's no central organization, and it's no not centralized in this administration. <laughs> yeah, so you don't have the computational complexity because people just say what they want and. Be- because of their innate goodness, they're not going to demand too much. So you're not going to have someone like me come in and say, I want your entire bread uh, stores. Mama Mia, I forgot. Take the bread stores and then demand fealty about that. from yeah. people if they're going to receive bread. I forgot that they would just... <laughs> demand genuflection. <laughs> they would only ask for exactly what they need and they would do it in a just and fair way. Yeah. So yeah. I, forgot, I forgot about that. <laughs> we'll yeah. up. And so, and now as, an, as a non-Kropotkin bot answer... What's to stop two rival groups of volunteers taking <laughs> bread? <laughs> and who mediates between these two rival groups of volunteers when they want the same piece of bread? And here again, here, uh, Levi's taken on Kropotkin. And this is and this is where you run into might makes right again because it like it's going to shake out into well, which group can violently convince no, no, the no. other one? Kropotkin bot Levi edition says no, no, no. There won't be rival yeah. groups of thugs. Uh, sorry, I mean volunteers. Um, there'll be. <laughs> there'll no, you be need to work out this bug in your particular <laughs> version of Kropotkin bot, which keeps replacing volunteers with thugs. <laughs> 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 That's a pretty because bad bug, everybody actually. is. Um, Embodying the same the same uniform sense of revolutionary fervor and brotherhood and solidarity, there will always and everywhere only ever be one band of volunteers, and they will not be coercive, and they will all uh, be able to collaborate. And so that's just not even a problem that's going to happen. There won't be rival volunteer bands. No, but you <laughs> see, Kropotkin bot running on Levi hardware. <laughs> My problem with that is when you look at the leftist revolutions through history, they tend to be very passionate. But one thing they're not good at is not infighting. It is, it is a specialty of the left. Of in, like, yeah, you get rioters infighting, but rioters are absolute amateurs when it comes to infighting when you compare them to leftists. So they are the, the undisputed masters of infighting. I'm pretty sure there would be a lot of rival games of volunteers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many times I can try to embody Kropotkin, but at some point I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have to say, <laughs> well, it won't. 
that won't happen. Sorry. Yeah, which actually is channeling Kropotkin bot. <laughs> That's the final answer to everything. Well, you're just wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a pretty big one. So essentially what... Okay, if I could summarise this in Levi's typically terse rambling... <laughs> terse and rambling. <laughs> summaries. Whenever I say I'm going to s- summarise something quickly, it inevitably turns into a rant. I'll try not to turn this into a rant. Turn into us talking about jelking in Bitcoin. <laughs> he talks about... Essentially what he's saying is they're going to ration things. Yeah. With In the absence of property rights a monetary technology and a price system, they're going to ration things, which, to be fair, is what you have to do. That is actually what you have to do if you're going to get rid of money. Mm. But the thing is, you've removed... So the th- the three things you just mentioned are all, in some way, coordination systems. Yeah. So ways of coordinating scarce resources or limited resources and needs. And I'm not sure how you coordinate it once you, you take away or you, you take off the table those coordination systems. And his answer to that is essentially... Oh, so one, that rationing system is going to be unbelievably inefficient, unbelievably poor at communicating information to everybody. And, like, he says it's not going to be centralised, but, like, there's just... Like, you have one or two storehouses in, like, a community of grain. Like, it's going to be centralised. It's going to be physically centralised and then in order to protect that with security and that sort of stuff so people don't steal and organisationally, like, these things will just become centralised. He can't get out of that. Yeah, well, in in the absence of ways of restraining power, centralisation arises as soon as you have someone with a sharpened stick standing in the doorway of the storehouse. Yeah, the peasant, the tallest peasant with the sharpest pitchfork is going to stand in front of the, the grain house and say, well, no, we're not just going to, like, hand it out to everybody. Like, I'm going to keep some to myself and my family. And so... He's basically not dealt with these issues and his hand-wavy response is to say, well, people will just, in, because of the better angels of our nature, when the revolutionary fervour sweeps the nation, will all act in each other's best interests in justice and fairness and brotherhood. And, like, essentially when you start talking about that sort of stuff, like, you're essentially just being, like, religious or quasi-religious and, mm. like, just saying, well, this will happen just because. And I don't, like, yeah. you can't really respond to that other than just to say, like, Fine, go and, no, like, uh, go, and, go and sit over there in the corner and just try not to break anything, please. Luckily, that's what yeah. the anarchists have actually done. <laughs> and I feel, I feel like... So I, I reflexively think that defending human freedom is a good thing. And to, yeah, because you've been indoctrinated. That, yeah, that's not a, a particularly <laughs> examined first principle. Or it's the sort of thing where... I think it was Isaiah Berlin who said, you can't change your first principles, you can only love them. And so I, I love that first principle <laughs> within that, that paradigm. And Kropotkin shares, I think, a large part of that first principle. Where we differ, and this is quite a fundamental difference, is he thinks that you are best able to free people by having a society without without formalised power structures and within such a society, people are free. Whereas I think people have this, at least certain people will seek to dominate others and the best way to try to defend human freedom is to constrain those impulses. And that is one of, that's probably like for me at least, you know, I, so sentimentally I 
have especially like gotten older and gotten more and more into Bitcoin, just become sentimentally more and more like anarcho-capitalist libertarian. But the thing that stops me from going all the way down into that form of thinking is just like, and you know, to be fair, I haven't read. Maybe, maybe there's some retort to what I'm about to say, but like one of the roles of democracy for the anarcho-libertarians who like want to completely get rid of democracy, the issue is that like for better or worse and to the degree that a country has a more or less functional democracy, it does actually serve this profound role of constraining that lust for power and channeling it in a way where there's balances and checks. And maybe there will be some, maybe we will figure out a better way to do it in the future without a state. And um, that would be really interesting and cool. And I would love to live to see that. And if it's a good idea, hopefully it works and people are prosperous and all that sort of stuff. But since I'm not living in that part of history and I can't make that judgment empirical assessment yet, for lack of seeing anything better, it seems as though like these democracies that have like some state and constrain those sorts of people and try to like mitigate the amount of damage they can do. Um, like, and then lets everybody else engage in a free and open market, like with property rights, seems to be a fairly good system, notwithstanding there's always going to be issues. Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's, I doubt there's ever going to be a perfect system because perfection is a bit of a moving target and a, yeah. a nebulously defined moving target. And so, so what what's the least bad or what's what's a system which gets the most the most of whatever collection of outcomes you want as compared to other systems? Yeah. And so again, I'm not gonna go on a popper and Deutsch rant, but this is really just like Levi's just I haven't found a better argument than what Popper and Deutsch put forward, which is basically like this system essentially allows <clears throat> people at a local scale to be able to solve problems. And what we want is we want societies that are stable at the level of like politics over time, there's a fair bit of stability, but there's dynamism in that like the culture can change and solve problems as new problems arise. And the key issue here being the utopians, like all the Marxists and socialists and stuff, is they don't realize that, lot, that problems occur at all scales from the local to the international, and new problems can arise in the future. In fact, if the species lives another million years or however much long it lives, presumably there'll be more problems in the future than there are now, and most of them are not foreseeable. I can't predict them now. And so you really don't want a, a society that is st static and doesn't have the means for adapting to new problems as they arise. Yeah. Um, okay, what else is there to talk about with Kropotkin? I think, um, where did he, did we get, are there any insights? So we have insights of anarchism. Are there any, oh yeah, maybe there was one insight that we wanted to, we sort of touched on a little bit before, but like, do we need to unpack it much more? The emergent order stuff. They have an interest. We talked about that yeah, earlier. I think, think we so. talked about it enough. So the last point I have is where did Kropotkin hit the mark 
versus where did he have like a close miss? So the emergent order stuff that we've talked about is an insight that is touching on something real. In terms of, so this was not limited to Kropotkin, the prediction that under capitalism, the lot of particularly urban workers would just continue to get worse and worse. During their lives, that was very much the trajectory. People were getting paid less, working conditions were getting worse, work was getting more unstable in terms of whether they would have it the next day or not. And that at least, so the big caveat is in Western countries, on the whole, so yeah, things like the gig economy are making some parts of work um, less predictable again. But on the whole, conditions have improved, pay has improved. What has happened in other countries, that's, that's less clear in that a lot of the more unpleasant parts of work have been offshored. And so people in lower income nations are being paid wages far below those of people in Western nations to produce goods cheaply for consumption in Western nations. That's something that Lenin uh, particularly hit on. And then Trotskyists also also, um, talked a lot about that. But I think directionally Kropotkin got it wrong on the whole with that part of his thought. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I... One point that he did pick up on, which again, like (laughs) Bitcoin rant, but he did identify that like the peasants... At one point he was talking about money and how the peasants wanted to be paid in gold. They didn't want to be given paper currency. Yeah, 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 yeah. He did identify that there is, like, even in our current system under fiat, like, fiat credit capitalism, there is theft going on. Like, monetary expansion is theft. So Mm. if you, it's just, it's quite abstract. So you have to, like, think about it for a second to realise that, like, like, I mean, people want to look into it. You can look at this thing called the Cantillian effect. Um, it's really interesting. But long story short, like if you think into the 19th century, okay, say there's the French Revolution and they centralise the government and then they, they, you know, say like this new government walks into a town and the local economy is operating presumably on gold as the primary like medium of exchange of like large scale um, purchases like land and stuff, but probably for smaller purchases, they they were probably using silver, maybe copper, probably not copper, but at that point in history, but silver and gold. Like Europe essentially uh, like evolved into a bimetallic standard, where gold is used for storing value over a long period of time and for large purchases, and silver because it has like a, a lower purchasing power per unit weight was used for like smaller purchases. And so, if like an outsider walks into your community. And they said, well, you're on French territory and now we're going to get off, whether it was pre-revolution under the king or whether it was post-revolution under like um, like the new French state, whatever, what was it called? The national, whatever. Um, like, uh, those, like, can you blame the peasants for saying, no, fuck you, I'm not going to use your paper money? Like, because presumably in Paris... You've got a paper printer. You can just print off more. Like it's not like peasants might have been poor. It doesn't mean they were stupid. Like mm, they're mm. using they're using gold. They know that gold can't just be like printed like piece of paper money can be. So 
they're going to use gold to do their transactions. And so it's almost like there were parts of the systemic um, theft of wealth through the monetary technology, which he was kind of getting close to, but because it got wrapped up, sort of his ideology got wrapped up with the Marxist analysis of the value theory of prices and his denigration of property rights sort of like didn't quite, he couldn't, he couldn't distinguish between those, those closely related problems. Yeah. Which is, yeah, to be fair, like, again, like it's a complex issue and I have historical hindsight. So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. He did, he did acknowledge or he understood that governments don't necessarily have much of an interest in keeping the money supply stable in in a way that allows people to save money or store basically store their value store their labor or some sort of wealth for later they also have incentives to try to buy people off yeah by by giving them more of this quote unquote yeah. money or value yeah in certain situations Was it when in, people um, need to be mollified in both the f- French, like when the French went, like, I mean, it's happened in a lot of wars, but I in particular look at, I think during the US, like during the Civil War, like they paid people in, um, was it in, I might be getting my wires crossed here, but I, I think they paid in the North, part of the reason why they were able to finance the war is they promised the soldiers, they paid the soldiers in notes <clears throat> or they promised them land. And then they either reneged on the promises of land or they reneged on the redeemability of the notes into gold. And so basically being able to like print fake money and then like issue it and like pay for the things that, you know, like the war rations or the property, you know, all of that works off trust or potentially coercion in the case of like the American revolution, oh, sorry, the American Civil War, it was like the trust of the Northern soldiers had that like these promissory notes would be, would maintain their convertibility back to gold after the war. And that trust was broken. And so like there is this huge systemic issue. Don't quote me on any of that stuff. I like, I might be wrong. Like my brains. I'm updating Wikipedia as we speak. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But you know, these sorts of things have happened throughout history, you know, like whether it was the Weimar Republic, like printing shitloads of money or like, you know, like Churchill, like fucking with the money supply to go into World War Two, those sorts of things. Like, you know, pe- I think how do, how would I put? It? I think like people kind of intuitively understand that this is like a thing that can be fucked with, and so it's it's just it's just complex enough that like it's actually taken a lot of really smart people a lot of their lives and a lot of argument arguing with one another to get to the point where now in 2023 we can say like with quite a lot of um robust arguments like what money is how it works why or why it should not like what are the effects of like expanding the monetary supply and all that sort of stuff yeah and it's not that governments don't have the incentive to keep keep their money stable because obviously they don't want hyperinflation and just a complete collapse of their monetary system but at the same time, that's not the only incentive they have. At various points, they also yeah. can have the incentive to print lots of it to make people think that times are better than they actually are. Yeah. Or to, to save the banking cartel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or to fund things that they can't pay for. Yeah, that like war. 
Yeah, yeah. That in the immediate short term, it looks like they can pay for if they just expand the money supply. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's hard because what were you saying about first principles? First principles, Jack. Like, it's like if you you've said this a number of times in episodes, and I, I love it when you say it. Is like you say, okay, if I adopt this person's like starting principles or starting assumptions, then I can see where they're coming from. And in the case of Crow Popkin, if I kind of squint and adopt like, okay, I'm going to get rid of my, like, like get rid of the property rights stuff and kind of squint, I can see where he's, see where he's trying to, how he's trying to make the world better, especially for like poor people in Europe, given that, he thinks that property rights are part of the problem. Yeah, and occupying Kropotkin's headspace isn't totally alien for me, given that there are a lot of things that I broadly agree on, in that I think that most human action is self-organised. It's not something that takes place because it has been commanded to by some some coercive body. Yeah. It's just I don't I don't go to the point of saying that there can be no coercive bodies that they're always yeah. bad, and that similarly, humans will always self-organize into something into some sort of society that I would want to live in. Yeah, that's a that's a first principle I don't share with him. Yeah. So, my question would be for us, Jack, or for my well for myself, but whether or not this comes through on the show. I was wondering, okay, like I've read some socialist stuff now and, you know, some fascist stuff and all this, whatever. I would like to read a book, whether it's on the show or in my own time, that actually really challenges my views with regards to all this, what you might think of as like liberalism and capitalism stuff that I broadly agree with. Like it would, like this, like this book, for example, it was interesting to read, but it didn't. I didn't feel as though it actually challenged my perspective in a meaningful. What I mean by cha- like it challenged it in the sense of it disagrees with me, but it's like I don't have. I don't find it difficult to dispatch with his point of view. I don't find it compelling, and I find there's so many easily pointed out and elucidated errors in his thinking that it's not actually. I don't find it challenging to disagree with this. Whereas it would be really interesting to find like a thinker. If shout out to any of our listeners on the Discord or on Twitter or whatever, like if you can suggest like an actual, whether it's a socialist or an anarchist or some other ideology, which Jack and I don't know about, who's actually like really heavy hitting, like this person actually brings like a really heavy attack on essentially all the stuff that Jack and I have obviously agreed with, with regards to property rights and Bitcoin and all that sort of shit, you know, that would be interesting to read. Yeah, that would be really good. I just haven't found it yet. Maybe it's for lack of looking, perhaps. Yeah. So, would you recommend this book? Because I would. Yeah. yeah. I'd recommend this one because it's it's well written. It's not very long. It's really interesting. It's still, I mean, insofar as anarchism is still a relevant mass movement, this book is relevant because this is this is one of the important works of anarcho-communism or of left anarchism. Yeah. More broadly, yep. and it's not like it. He's not coming from a malicious place. He genuinely wants the world to be a better place, and no, he's not he's being larping, malicious. as you said earlier in the in the yeah. episode. And I like his instincts. 
of not trusting centralized authority and coercive <laughs> powers and things like that. That I can definitely get behind. Mm, yeah. I, I would recommend it. I so here's my caveat with all of my recommendations, actually. Um I think that there's unless you're particularly reflexive on the way that you do the learning, um, it's very important to pay attention to the way that you sequence the books that you read. And mm. what I mean by that is that the books that I read when I was younger and the things that I learned when I was younger have conditioned me now to have like either they're explicit or they're inexplicit and that like I kind of have them as working assumptions, but I don't really think about them that much anymore. Things around like um, philosophy and economics and science and physics and all that sort of stuff has conditioned me now when I come up against a thinker like Kropotkin where I can just think through, okay, here's computer science issues, here's pricing system issues, here's economics issues, like here's all these different issues with what he's thinking. And so it's prepared me with the ability to like engage with it really critically. And that's because of actually the sequencing of my learning. So if, in fact, I had learned all these things the other way around, where I say I went and learned about socialist, socialist philosophy and Marxism and all that sort of stuff, and I wasn't able to then critically self-reflect on that learning, I could go and then learn about, say, um, Mises and not be able to engage with his insights. And then, obviously, because... Like, I like what Mises says. Like, I think Mises is largely right in his analysis. So <clears throat> what's this What's this all to me? What I mean is, like, I think some of the issues with why, say, like, the uh, Occupy movement went wrong, because a lot of the people who engage with that movement, they correctly identify that there's, like, an issue here. Yeah, the banking cartel and, and centralised banking is fucking, fucking everything up in the economy. But because maybe the lack of economic education in the population, when they went to engage with ideas like Kropotkin or socialist stuff, they can't see all of the like very serious critiques of these ways of thinking that like actually don't work. And so if you haven't like sequenced your thinking or sequenced your learning well, where you've got like really good strong foundation foundations and like first principles to work on, you just need to be careful when you're getting into ideological literature because your like only defense against these sorts of ideologies is essentially like strong first thinking, first principles thinking. I guess I have a different approach to this sort of thing than you. My approach is volume that just take in a lot of <laughs> a lot of different perspectives without worrying too much about sequencing. And when you read them, just trying to have the posture of okay, what's this person trying to convince me of? Understanding that they are trying to bring you around to their point of view and yeah. just seeing enough examples to eventually develop a sense of what makes sense and what doesn't. I'm not sure which approach is better. That's just how I've approached things. Yeah. And I think, like, if you're, like, just say Jack is a very fast reader and he reads quite a lot. And um, if you can do that, that's also a good strategy. Uh, maybe the core of the strategy would really be like, okay, maybe here's a better way to put it. Rather than sequ sequencing is mm. one way to get to the same outcome as Jack's volume approach. Are we talking about? <laughs> are we talking here about working out or <laughs> bodybuilding? Is that essentially like you want to like in order to 
not basically have your mind hijacked by an ideology, even though you might say that Levi's been hijacked by, like, liberalism. Um, <laughs> I mean, fucking hell. Can't get out of the trap, can you? Um, like, you need to expose yourself to, like, alternative points of view. And preferably you have some quality control of that. And really, like, the quality control comes from being able to pull on really strong arguments that either other people have put forward or that you've come up with yourself for or against these different perspectives. So at least in the Jack's volume approach, he could still get the same thing that I'm talking about if he just reads enough and doesn't worry too much about sequencing. Yeah, one other way that really helps is knowing people knowing people whom you trust to be good faith in in telling you about their beliefs who believe different things to you and and talking to them about what they believe. So some some upgraded version of Kropotkin bot, an actual anarchist, an actual like a, tw- a 21st century Kropotkin bot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you can talk to someone who sincerely believes these things and isn't just going to yell at you and tell you you're a bad person for asking them why they believe these things, that's a really good way to learn about different perspectives. That is harder yeah. than buying a book and reading it, but if if you can do that, I really recommend it. Yeah, but with that with that caveat, sorry, I, I don't know why I wanted to say that. Um, I just feel like yeah, we've recommended well, books. It's in useful. The past. It's, it's, it's a good it's thing to bring up. Yeah, yeah, because like obviously, like reading these books is really interesting. But I guess um, I like I try to be open minded, but I don't necessarily think that just having an open mind is just an uh, a priori good thing. Like if you have just an open mind and you just let anybody pour anything into it. That's just a recipe for disaster. Like you've got to <laughs> no. Have... You need you need to overwhelm your own capacity for discernment. <laughs> That's a good. You need thing. to be dis- discerning or critical and and open minded. So, <laughs> no <yeah>. critical capacity. <laughs> and if you can do that, then like read this book. It's really good. It's really interesting. And yeah, read about it's a good history. Book. Yeah. Uh, in terms of listener questions, do you want to just do a separate episode? For, for listener questions, because we keep getting to the end of episodes, and I'm just kind of tired. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I just won't give questions as, as much time as I, I probably would otherwise if I were fresh. The next week or two, yeah, sure. Yeah, no yeah. Problem. Let's schedule in a a questions episode. What have we? Oh, we've got furry comics next. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, that's a different to Kapukin. All right, well, that'll be fun at least. We yeah, that'll, that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thanks, All right, for, thanks listening. for listening. See ya.